By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. Put 50 up for sale on that Wednesday, having promoted it, I think, on the Monday. And we sold the first 50 in like under a minute. And we were like, okay. This is a thing. Everyone from like the Spice Girls to Stormzy to all these people made these kits. It was huge on Instagram and uh, it saved the company. This is an interview between me and Tom Elliott, who is the co-founder of the really successful pizza chain of Pizza Pilgrims. It's incredibly exciting because Pizza Pilgrims has been around now for 10 years and it actually started on a bit of a whim when Tom and his brother decided that they were gonna quit their corporate jobs that they didn't enjoy and they were gonna to do a little pilgrimage to Italy to learn about how pizzas are being made. And then while in Italy, they bought a pizza van, they drove it all the way back to the UK, and they started their first store in 2012. We were like obsessed with pizza, that's, that's the thing. That's what we're gonna do to break into this world. Then obviously after we'd come down off that initial high, it was like, oh, we know nothing about pizza at all. We have no skills, no understanding. We need to figure it out. So. That's when we realized that we needed to go to Italy to understand what it's all about. And so in this very wide ranging conversation, we talk about how they took that plunge initially to quit their boring corporate jobs and do this rogue thing like starting a pizza business. We talk about some of the challenges of entrepreneurship as it relates to having a food business and all of the various different issues and challenges associated with that. And Tom shares a bunch of really, really helpful advice that's useful for me and that's useful for any entrepreneur, whatever stage of the journey you're at. If you have that thing in you, whatever that is, to, to want to start a business, I just think you've got to go for it early. Like if you're going to do it, do it as early as you possibly can. It annoys me that we don't encourage people straight after their A-levels, definitely straight after university, to go and have a crack at something. This episode is sponsored by Kajabi, and they've actually got something really valuable for all of our deep dive listeners. Now, if you haven't heard of Kajabi, it's basically a platform that helps creators diversify their revenue with courses and membership sites and communities and podcasts and coaching tools. So it's one of the best places for creators and entrepreneurs to build a sustainable business. We started using Kajabi earlier this year, and as soon as we started using it, we were like, oh my God, why haven't we been using this product for the last three years? It's got everything you'd possibly need for running an online course or hosting an online community or building an online coaching business. And it essentially makes it really easy to run your entire online business from payments to marketing tools to analytics. Kajabi has everything that we creators need all in one place. And actually, you don't necessarily need a huge audience to generate a sustainable income. A creator on Kajabi can, for example, make $100,000 by converting just 350 customers a year, depending on your price points. And in fact, there are creators on the platform that are making millions of dollars every year with fewer than 100,000 followers across the social media platforms. We've been using Kajabi to host all of our online courses since the start of 2023, from our $1 part-time YouTube foundations to help people start off on their YouTube journey, all the way up to our $5,000 package for the part-time YouTuber Accelerator, which gives you access to me and my team. And Kajabi does not take any cut of what you earn. Creators keep and own everything. The way Kajabi makes money is through the monthly subscription fee. And even though we generate like literally millions of dollars every year from Kajabi, we're still only paying them a couple of hundred dollars a year. And actually in their lifetime, Kajabi have paid out over $6 billion to creators, the billion with a B, and over a thousand creators have become millionaires through products on the platform. Now, back in May 2023, I did a keynote at a Kajabi in real life Kajabi Heroes event in Austin, Texas. And in that keynote, I talked about the exact steps that I used to grow my business from zero to over two and a half million dollars per year from course revenue alone. 
Now, people paid for the pretty expensive tickets to watch this keynote at the Kajabi Hero live event. But as an exclusive deal for Deep Dive listeners, Kajabi have very kindly offered to provide the recording of that keynote completely for free to anyone who listens to this podcast. So if you're interested in getting completely free access to that keynote, just head over to kajabi.com forward slash Ali. That's kajabi.com forward slash A-L-I. And that'll be linked in the show notes in the video description as well. You just enter your email address and then you will get the recording of that keynote completely for free, whether or not you ever become a Kajabi customer. So thank you so much to Kajabi for sponsoring this episode. This episode is very kindly brought to you by none other than Huel. Now, I've been a paying customer of Huel since 2017. I first discovered it in my fifth year of medical school. And if you haven't heard of it, it's basically a meal in a bottle. And in that meal, you get a balanced mixture of carbohydrates and fats and proteins and fiber. And it also contains 26 different vitamins and minerals. And each meal has around 400 calories and 22 grams of protein. So it's pretty reasonable in terms of protein count. And because I tend to be pretty busy and there's always stuff going on, I tend not to really have time to get a healthy breakfast or a healthy lunch. And so I'll often use Huel ready to drink as a replacement for my breakfast on my lunch. They've got eight different flavors that are available. My two favorites are banana and salted caramel. So if you find those, you should check them out. And even though Huel as a company started off online, direct to consumer, recently they've propagated amongst all of like the grocery stores in the UK at least. And so I've been seeing it out and about everywhere, which is pretty cool. And very excitingly, we also have an episode with Julian Hearn, who is the founder of Huel back on this podcast from season one. And so that episode was a real masterclass in entrepreneurship. And it was really cool seeing, kind of hearing the story of exactly how Huel came together. So head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive. And thank you so much Huel for sponsoring this episode. Now, this season is once again being sponsored very kindly by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for investment advice uh, because they see that I've made money and I've made videos talking about where I'm investing that money. The thing that Warren Buffett and basically everyone who's sensible in the space recommends, which is to invest in broad stock market index funds, which you can do completely for free using Trading212. Trading212 is a fantastic app that lets you invest in stocks and shares and funds in a commission-free fashion. And they've got a bunch of features which are really helpful, which is why I personally use Trading212 to manage a portion of my portfolio. So firstly, they've got this great pies and auto invest feature. So if you're interested in potentially getting into investing, what you can do is you can browse the different pies that different people have created on the platform. So you might get like a hedge fund trader who's gone onto the platform and has created a pie of investments, having done a bunch of research and stuff. And that pie might be like, I don't know, 20% Apple, 20% Tesla, 10% this, 10% that, but it's generally way more complicated than that. And you can see the performance of that particular pie of stocks and shares and funds. And then if you want to copy that pie into your own account, you can just copy and paste it directly in and then you can invest any amount of money and it will automatically split it according to the allocation in the pie. So if you wanted to just play around with a hundred pounds and you were like, okay, that pie looks good it will split out that hundred pounds based on the allocations of the pie, which is pretty sick. They've also recently added support for multi-currency accounts. Now this is really helpful because for example, if you invest in the S&P 500, which is a US-based index fund, then you won't get hit with all the various foreign exchange fees if for example, you're investing from the UK like I do. And if you have an invest or an ISA account, then Trading212 also gives you daily interest on your uninvested cash in pounds or euros or US dollars. So if any of that sounds up your street, then do please hit the link in the video description or in the show notes and that will let you sign up to Trading212. And if you use that link, you will also get a completely free share up to the value of £100. So it's literally free money, so you might as well. So thank you so much, Trading212, for sponsoring this episode. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thank you, you for coming on. Um, so you quit your job and started a pizza company, which has now just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. So that's all really rogue. What was the what was the origin story? How did uh, how did you get started? I love how success in restaurants these days is just survival. <laughs> like <laughs> that is literally like high five everyone ten years. Uh, but no, it was it was a it's been a mad journey. It was um, I worked in advertising. I started the company with my brother. I have to admit, it was his idea. I was very much the sort of enabler of his idea. But um, 
Yeah, so I was working in advertising. My brother was working in TV production. We had grown up literally above a pub. Our parents had run a pub. We had lived above it and sort of had that sort of hospitality thing in our veins. And yeah, we had both been in London for sort of five, seven years doing jobs that we really didn't enjoy, didn't get a kick out of at all. Had tried a couple of times to like maybe start a pub of our own, but we had no capital. We had no kind of experience or so no one would have backed us. Um, and so we were sort of a bit sort of stuck, I guess. And then just out of nowhere, like a sort of an amazing revelation, this this food truck, street food revolution happened in, in London. And suddenly it was possible to, you know, create a credible quality-led brand but have no capital and start it in the back of a food truck. What do you mean you can start a food business without capital so like honestly I, I genuinely believe and this is like me kind of getting carried away with myself but i think in the sort of world of food which does like to kind of like self-reflect quite a lot in 50 years time we'll look back on like 2010 to 2012 very much how we look back on like 1961 to 1963 in music terms just like a sort of an explosion of like creativity all the right things in all the right places twitter just landing street food trucks becoming a thing uh, obviously, just off the back of a big recession, so lots of people having lost their jobs, looking to kind of start afresh. And you know, I still think in London, particularly, like so many of the great brands that went on to become something bigger, all started in that time. Like your Deschumes, your Flatirons, your mm. Patty and Buns, your Honest Burgers, you know, Caravan. I mean, this you could go on forever. There are so many fantastic brands that like started in that moment. Um, and our, but our particular way in was was street food, and it was. Like I said, we were looking around for a way to get in. I mean, restaurants, famously, they require a bit of capital. They require you to put quite a lot on the line because you've got to build the bloody thing before you even open it. Yeah. And suddenly there was an opportunity to, you know, we, we were going, we were like traveling across London, having seen on Twitter that there was, you know, this meat wagon in um, in in a car park in New Cross or Peckham or whatever. And you'd go and there'd be, you know, potentially hundreds of people waiting to try a burger, excited excited about the product, like a product-led business, um, all driven by Twitter and like this sort of like, you know, it's going to be gone tomorrow, so we've got to go now type feeling. And, you know, it was it was a genuine thing. And, you know, that was another one. Meat, meat Wagon became uh, Meat Easy, became Meat Liquor. And that hmm. was, you know, one of the hottest restaurant openings of 2013, probably. So we're in 2013, you and your brother are working the corporate jobs in in in, in your corporate jobs, which, you, which you're not particularly enjoying. Yeah. How do you get from there to let's start a food truck? Like that still feels a bit... A bit it, and there was a huge amount of like, I mean, everyone, a lot of eye rolls, eye rays, <laughs> a lot of like, okay, here's another person who's lost their mind. Um, but I mean, it, the short version is that we really wanted to do it. We were trying to find a way into the food business. My brother went and did for his 21st birthday, which had been a few years earlier. He'd went, he'd gone and done like a sort of cookery class in Italy, which he'd been paid for by his grandmother. And we, he'd seen basically that everyone had pizza ovens in their gardens. And instead of a barbecue, people had a pizza oven. Uh, so then we had an idea we'd start a pizza oven company and like put pizza ovens in people's gardens. Then Jamie Oliver did that. So we were like, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. feel like feel like he's got this one. So, but the sort of idea of pizza remained. Then we had this kind of street food element. So, you know, going down to Meat Wagon, going to uh, King's Cross and seeing the guys on Eat Street and like, you know, chatting to all those guys about, you know, some of them were doing paella, some of them were doing hot dogs and you know, understanding that life and just, again, seeing that, like, you know, they were building real brands that had real Twitter following and had real people that came back every week to try yeah. it. Um, and we looked at that scene and we were like, no one's doing pizza. That seems insane. as like mm. one of the world's great 
if not the world to great food stuff, why is no one doing pizza? Turns out the reason you're not doing pizza is because you have to buy a massive great oven, which costs you thousands of pounds, and you've got to carry the bloody thing around. <laughs> so uh, so that was the reason why. But yeah, we were like obsessed with pizza. That's that's the thing. That's the thing that's going to, that's, that's what we're going to do to break into this world. Uh, then obviously after we'd come down off that initial high, it was like, oh, we know nothing about pizza at all. We have no no skills, no understanding. We need to figure it out. So that's when we realized that we needed to go to Italy to understand, you know, birthplace of pizza, yeah. to understand what it's all about. So we okay. question. Would love to d- dive into the pizza stuff, but I'm still intrigued. Like, you're like, I don't enjoy my job. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, like, you could start a software business. You could start a YouTube channel. You could start a whatever, any, anything other than a food business. Like, what was it about the food business that made you think that's the thing we want to do? I think it is just that, like, genuinely, it's just that little human interaction thing of, like, giving someone a little bit of joy. Yeah. And we still try and do that. Like, street food is the most perfect distillation of that. There's no business in the world, really, where someone comes up to you, kind of like, you know, Fisher-Price business. Someone comes up to you and goes, can I have that thing that you sell? Here's a crisp five-pound note. You go away. You make it for them to order. You then give it to them and then you watch you watch them eat it. Yeah. And it's like this glorious feedback loop of like hmm. you can actually ask them what they thought, you can learn from it, you kind of get this, you know, it's got this real kind of immediacy energy that you just cannot get from anything digital or yeah. you know, it's just it's just real. There's just no I mean that sounds so incredibly cringeworthy when I say it, but No, not at all. It's it's quite inspiring, really. Like, like it's, it's so true, because like there are, there's no other business where you literally make the thing and just give it to them. Yeah. Except maybe like build a bear or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, build a bear. <laughs> Who doesn't wish they started that? Yeah. Business? I've got good margins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um so was it the pub background that helped with this or I think that's it. I think it's a little bit of uh, you know, we were in the pub all the time. I worked behind the bar when I got old enough all that kind of stuff so that kind of constant human interaction i guess you kind of crave mm. and it does provide that um i think there is just that that feeling that you know i don't know hospital you feel like i guess you'll feel like you're sort of giving something back in some weird way which you're mm. totally not really but you are you know you're you're meeting an absolutely fundamental human need which is to eat yeah. and hopefully meeting it in an elevated way yeah. so it's like you're doing something exciting i, I honestly don't think I could start a sushi business because I just I I think cold food doesn't have that <laughs> yeah. same emotional yeah. driver that hot food has. That's true, yeah. Like, you know, I just don't think, you know, it's always a choice that you're doing because it's you're trying to make a compromise, you're trying to be healthy, you're yeah. trying to be fast. Whereas I think like a hot cooked meal, oh. it's, it's, you know, it's never going to go away whenever, you know, even if we end up in ready player one, yeah. you're still going to want to take that headset off and have a hot meal for mm. sure. And so... Yeah, I just, I think, you know, at a very deep level, we certainly didn't think about it this way at the time, but at a deep level, that was a thing. We yeah. wanted, you know, we wanted to be part of that. I think it's always, you know, with the street food things particularly, it's, it's nice to be part of a movement. And like we we were there, not, certainly not the earliest, but yeah. like very much early in that world. And still, like, you know, we know all those guys really well. Some of them have gone on to like do restaurants. Some of them are still doing the street food thing. You know, I think we're both secretly quite jealous of those of those guys still doing the kind of street food festivals life because it is it is just it's it's hard work, really hard work. But it's also like once it's stopped, it's stopped. Yeah. You're not sitting there going like, oh god, got to do this or that or the other. It's you know, you do your festival and then you have a week off, and it's like nice. To to what extent would you recommend? the food business if someone's listening to this and let's say they're working a corporate job and they're like you know what i want to start a business 
I actually know a lot of people who are like, oh, I'd love to start a burger van or something like that. Yeah. Um, would you, to what extent would you recommend it? I would recommend it so wholeheartedly. Really? If, if ah, okay. <laughs> it's for the love. Okay. Because it is, there is no doubt, if you're like, I just want to make loads of money fast, food is the worst possible way to do that. It's incredibly, incredibly hard to like, you know, get yourself going. It's hard work. It's hugely rewarding, but not necessarily financially. Uh, but, you know, if, if you if you want like a lifestyle business or something that's going to like just put you into interesting situations with interesting people or like throw crazy opportunities, you know, that you never thought would come your way and you're willing to work hard and like put the, put the time and energy in. I mean, we, you know, we, we've just loved every minute of, of, of doing a food business cool. and yeah, I, you know, I, I, I really can't say any, any clearer than that. Nice. Okay. So you decide that you're going to start the food business and you're like, cool, we have to go to Italy. Yeah. What happens next? What happens next? So we, we go to Italy. I weirdly email my boss in the advertising agency being like, I've heard on the grapevine, we've not met, but you're you're starting a bakery in Cambridge, apparently. You're leaving to start a bakery in Cambridge. I'm leaving to start a pizza company. We should go and have a beer. Oh, which bakery was this? Uh, it's called... Uh, it, it's called, really famous for Chelsea Buns, called... Uh, Cinnabon? No, 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 no. Fitzbillies? Fitzbillies. Fitzbillies. Your boss started Fitzbillies? So, Fitzbillies is like an age-old business. Okay, I was going to say, it's from like very old, isn't it? Hundreds yeah. of years ago, yeah. or certainly tens and tens of years ago. It had fallen into disrepair, disrepute. Yeah. Someone had given up on it, whatever. It was like, it was available to be sold. So in 2011, yeah. she had just bought it with her husband oh, and was like, I'm going to transform this business. Mate, I've been to Fitzbilly so many times, 2012 through 2018. There you go. When I, I mean, go back to Cambridge, I started to go to Fitzbilly, take my mum there, the cinnamon, cinnamon it, rolls with we the went, We went recently because we yeah. very recently opened a pizza programs in Cambridge. Yeah. And we always go on a little, because basically I emailed her, not knowing her, but saying like, you're obviously off to start this bakery. Uh, she was like, yeah, absolutely. We should totally come for a beer. When you come to my house, she lives in Camden. Let's go, go for a beer in Camden. Went to meet her. What I didn't know was her husband uh is was the food critic for the financial times oh this guy called tim haywood and he's just he was the first person basically who like listened to our story our idea the fact that we were going to italy and was like hell yes this is a great idea oh, i'm nice. super psyched about this he was like the first human being that was like supportive of the plan so why, why was he supportive of it like what was i think he's just he know that? he's he's got sort of this incredible like puppy like enthusiasm about just everything to do with like food and lifestyle and yeah, cool stuff. Sorry, that wasn't us. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's he obviously he's a food critic. He's engaged with exciting food things. We were like obviously excited to go and learn about pizza and all that stuff. And he was just like, "This is an awesome idea. You need to make more of this pilgrimage. This should be a thing that you like really like lean on and like get the most out of." We mostly, on if we're honestly truthful, the reason we were doing the pilgrimage was because it was cheaper to buy the van that we wanted in Italy because it was made in Italy oh. than it was to so get it imported. Like you can drive it across. So we were like, we'll go, we'll pick it up, we'll drive it back, we'll save a load of money, and in the meantime, we'll kind of try and learn a bit about pizza. But he was like, you're missing the point. This is like, this is the best possible starting place for your business. Okay, why? Because he was like, this is your, you know, everyone, pizza is the most saturated market in the world. You've got to find a reason why you're different. Yeah. And... At the very least, this is a fantastic story to start off with. Like we went um, to Italy to Like we went learn, to Italy to learn. Okay. And honestly, like that really, you know, the whole thing was so unplanned, un, you know, there was no strategy. It wasn't like, oh, we'll do this in order to do this, in order to open a pizzeria. I literally was like, I hate my job. My brother's had this idea. I'm going to go and help him. So at the very least, I've got out of advertising and I've done something like vaguely productive. Yeah. And then probably in a year's time, 
I'll go and like disappear into the shadows. He can go and do that and I'll go and find something else to do. Were you in, in, in a TV show at one point? So, so Tim being super enthusiastic about the pizza was like, you know, this is the thing you need to make the most of. My brother worked in TV. So we then basically went away. We wrote a pitch, literally two sides of A4. Yeah. We sent it to four production companies. We sent it to like Optiman, who are a big, big food production company, Fresh One, which is Jamie Oliver's production company, uh, AN other. And we sent it to a, a, a fourth, much smaller one, which is a friend, a friend of a friend of James's from TV called Rampage. They'd just started out. Anyway, we went, we sent off this pitch to all these shows. They all came back being like, we love this idea. We went and had meetings with all of them. But basically the bigger guys, you know, um, we sat with Pat Llewellyn, who was the, she's the voice on the very original Jamie Oliver shows. Mm. She's like, she discovered Jamie Oliver. And she was like, I love this idea, really want to do it. But, you know, it's July now, you know, we're going to have to go away, fully plan it out. Then we have to go and pitch at stations. Like best case scenario, we're starting filming this in 18 months. Yeah. And I was like, well, we're leaving in two months. Yeah. So we're either doing it now or we're not doing it. This is not about the TV. This okay, is very yeah. much about the business. Um, so anyway, didn't do it with those guys. Rampage were like, look, we'll take a punt. We'll do it without a, uh, a TV show, a TV channel. Let's just freaking go for it. And so we kind of set off and, and made this slightly random TV show where we we took, we elongated the pilgrimage. They kind of brought in some researchers. We ended up doing a lot more stops. Uh, and we made we made a TV show, which quite honestly was not a TV show that we were excited by when, mm. it, when it started to happen. It was very clear that like, their creative vision and our creative vision were very different. Yeah. They were paying for it, so we didn't really... And we were like right at the beginning of everything. We had no yeah. position to tell them what to do. And there was a TV show made. And, you know, the plus side was it, it gave us access that we couldn't have possibly imagined if we just rocked up on our own. Yeah. So, like, you know, we went to Damakele, the you know, the world-famous pizzeria in Naples, and they let us, like, see the dough room and, like, get into the kitchen and, like, yes. get around it. Whereas... You know, if we turned up just two Muppets, they'd have been like, join the queue and absolutely not. Yeah. Did you ever do a thing with like Nigella Lawson? Never did. I've, 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 Mary I've, Berry. Mary Berry, maybe. We did Mary Berry. We made was, pizza with Mary Berry. Was that in her garden or something? In her garden. Oh, because when you said that story of like driving to Italy to get the van, I was like, I was watching a, I was watching a cooking show yeah. with my mum like two months ago. And I remember yeah. that story. So that it, was you guys. It's literally oh, insane how many people watch, watch the Mary Berry show. The amount of people who watch that show. I was just randomly watching it with my mum and it was like, you, you guys. That was us. In the garden. Yeah, yeah. Telling the story. And Mary, making the pizza. Exactly. Making a pizza, telling the story. Mary Berry is like exactly how you'd want her to be. Yeah. There was like a moment where the whole like shooting stopped, stopped happening. And she, um, well, she baked everyone cakes, obviously, for yeah. like the breaks. And there was, the shooting stopped and we were like, went off to have a cigarette or whatever. And she like completely unironically went into her garden and like just gathered a bunch of wild flowers and just like came back and was like, here you go, guys, here's some flowers. Wow. It was just like, <laughs> Mary Berry, you're like everything I'd hoped so you good. would be and more. Nice. Sorry, I derailed with that excitement of like, wait a minute, I think I've seen this on TV. Um, so you... Completely separate. We made this TV yeah. show. It did end up featuring on the Food Network. Uh, I reckon about 27 or 28 people watched it in total, including my family. Nice. We were never very proud of it. I haven't actually watched the whole thing in total in my, my myself. But... It did two things that was amazing for us. It, it, it opened some doors in Italy and like allowed us to get into places that we couldn't otherwise have done. And I think it kind of, it gave the business like a sort of momentum, a sort of fake momentum that meant that like people were kind of like, oh, this is coming up. This must be something as opposed mm. to like, does that make sense? Yeah. So I guess like 
if we think of, you know, within within stories, I like to think of sort of takeaway lessons from people. But it's like your brother taking advantage of the industry he was already in to be like, hang on, let's let's have a punt and see what we can do here. Yeah. Which is just, you know, someone's, if someone didn't have access to that industry or didn't know that that was, was a possibility, they wouldn't, their brain wouldn't even have thought that it's it's an option to, like, yeah. I have no idea what these companies are that you just mentioned. Yeah, production companies. But, yeah. but, but again, I, I, I think for me, the lesson there is, send the email to the person with the spurious connection yeah that's that's the thing for me that like we've always done and certainly in the early days we did it like relentlessly of just like if there's any reason to like reach out to people just do it because people always want to help yeah they always want to tell their story they always want to like meet like-minded people who do similar stuff Mm. so like me emailing that boss person who did not know me i did not know her and just saying hey you're off to start a bakery i'm starting another bread product based business we should definitely go for a coffee that that's that's the energy that's kind yeah. of like a sort of create your own luck vibe yeah. i guess um and it's just you know if you shoot enough things you know throw enough shit at the wall something will stick right yeah and so have, have you had any other examples in your life or the business's life where like a cold email has been like whoa we didn't expect that to so so many of those i'm not gonna be able to think of any i will do eventually but like so many examples as well where like we'd go and do an event and you'd get there and my brother would look at me like, what the hell are we doing here? It's raining on a Tuesday and we're making pizza in a car parking space in Hammersmith or something. This is depressing. And you'd do it and you'd be like, yeah, this is depressing, whatever you do it. And then, you know, you'd be chatting to people there. Someone would give you a card. And then a year later, you know, you'd email that person back and be like, great to meet you. Like, come and have a pizza sometime. And then a year later, it's like, oh, I'm actually like, you know, so-and-so's best mate and i'm you know or i know you know a landlord who's got an, a site and he thinks he'd be great or it, just these weird connections that just come from like building those those actual connections chatting to people and then following up basically yeah. um and it, it's happened to us over and over again and i think that's the other thing i never understand about sort of business as you see it on the telly it's just this whole like sort of aggressive you know i'll step on your throat to get the next level yeah it's just like but that person whose throat you stepped on is like an opportunity that you've squashed that yeah. will never, ever come back to be an opportunity. Mm. And I think we have genuinely, I know it sounds like a cliche, but we've genuinely tried to like never be those guys. Yeah. And like, all, you know, it's amazing to me how many times people that you never thought you'd see again or would never have any relevance to your business or your personal life or whatever just reappear in your life. Yeah. I had, had one, I mean, it's, it's not hugely business relevant, but like... um the manager of swingers where we swingers you know the crazy golf club mm, yeah we we were in their first ever pop-up doing pizza and the manager of the place the guy who you know we we kind of got on pretty well with and it was all a bit chaotic and but you know we we kind of worked with him and it was mad and two days ago like he turned up uh on my front step in where i lived down near brighton uh because he he, you know, he was seeing if anyone needs a gardener it's like he's there just oh. like randomly there nice and you're like oh amazing this is so good what a great connection and i just i love those i'd hate to think that he turns up and you open the door and he's like oh it's you that Mm. horrible horrible person that did that horrible horrible thing to me yeah yeah i think this i I often think about this this idea of serendipity and a lot of like if i think of all of the different if i think of all of the different sort of step changes we've seen in our business basically all of them have been a result of a single a single conversation with like a random person that like if I hadn't just sent them a DM on Twitter that day, or if yeah. they didn't happen to have already known, I, like you know, there was a case where I, t- I took this, these two guys' online course on like writing and, and like note taking and stuff, 
and they happened to have seen my YouTube channel. And so I was engaging in the Zoom chat on the like during lockdown and they were like, oh, Ali Abdal, I recognize that name. And then I DM'd them on the Zoom there to be like, hey, let's hop on a call afterwards, hopped on a call afterwards. And that that one call changed our first product from being like a, I don't know, $100,000 product to like a $3 million product just instantly yeah. in like 10, 10 minutes on a Zoom call. Yeah. And my mind was just blown. It's like, what the hell? It's like a random serendipitous thing of like, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. Yeah. Mental. And particularly in restaurants where like, you know, you so many people coming through and like yeah. just making sure you're like taking the time to like just grab people and chat to them, whether that's, in a, you know, a team member or a customer or whatever. It's just like always exciting stuff comes from it. Always. Mm. Yeah. The other thing that I find surprising is that within business, the world seems very small. Yeah. Like everyone's kind of knows, like knows everyone else in a weird way. Yeah. And you would think that all, there's all these businesses out there, but actually it's like, it's a fairly small network <laughs> in the grand it, scheme it, of things. It totally is. And I think, um, I tell you, that, that's one absolutely amazing thing about hospitality as an industry. Like, and I don't have a huge number of other industries to, other than advertising where I worked, but like everyone in hospitality wants to help everyone else. Like I can call up so many people now and be like, hey, your restaurant here, how does it do? Or, you know, you've worked with this landlord, what do you think? Or And we just chat about everything. It's like yeah. sort of like, you know, mother's meeting type thing. It's It's great. And like, I don't think other industries do that. I think if you work in retail, you don't, you know, I don't think Curry's are speaking to M&S to find out what's going on and whether yeah. this site's working for them. And it's just not happening. Whereas mm. 100% happens in hospitality. So don't them, like, is, isn't there a sense of like competition, like footfall competition and stuff like that? Not really, because I think the general consensus is the more restaurants there are in a place, the more footfall there'll be. Is I, I think it's a kind of of the chicken and egg like the restaurants are first and then the people come mm-hmm, yeah. um so you know I, i've never or very very rarely encountered i can't think of anyone off the top of my head someone who's like cagey on this stuff like everyone on new sites new locations when a new you know a new exciting thing happens like batsy power station or whatever like we all chat about like you know is it working for you what's your deal that's what happens and i i love that it's like and i think i think it's basically built from like uh, you know back to your earlier question like Hospitality is the perfect industry if you love people. Mm. If like you get your, if you recharge by like chatting to new people and like being in busy situations and just like constantly being like surrounded by people to chat to, hospitality is that. And so everyone who starts a successful hospitality business is built that way, and therefore they all want to chat to their their direct competitors and mm. get a point of view from them. And yeah, nice. Okay, so you're in Italy. You're going to buy a van in Italy. How did you how did you get the money for the van? Barclay card. Oh, we, really? We put the whole thing on a Barclay card. <laughs> How much was it? Uh, it was just over 10K. Okay. You can, blo- yeah. so you can buy a pizza van for 10K? Uh, well, at the time, the van itself, I think, was 6,900 euros. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, the van is... So the big discovery when we landed in Italy. So we, we bought the van in Reggio di Calabria, which is like the tip of the toe, yep. just opposite the water on Sicily. Um, and we picked it up, turned the ignition, pulled out the, pulled out the sort of showroom... And realized that this thing had a top speed of like 20 miles an hour. Ah. Like, and we genuinely didn't know that until we pulled out. It was like, this is the most ridiculous vehicle. We have footage of us being overtaken up a hill by a jogger. That is how <laughs> slow the vehicle is. Nice. Uh, and so, yeah, that kind of very quickly reframed the trip because it was like, okay, so that thing, that drive that we thought we could do in an hour and a half, not going to happen. Um, the way to work out the speed of an Ape is to take the average on Google of the Cardheim and the walk time nice that's that's, the, that's the speed the, of the, the midpoint is the the speed of your actual vehicle okay so you pay 10k you get this van yeah. you trundle it up back to the uk trundle it up back to the uk via 
loads of pizza stops. We, you know, we went and made mozzarella. We learned about tomatoes. We, but I mean, the big moment is when we went to Naples. So mm. we, again, we didn't really know that Neapolitan pizza was kind of the big, the big one, and that's yeah. where it all started. But we went to Naples. We had a pizza in Damicheli, and we were just like, "How have I lived for twenty seven, twenty eight years and not had this before?" Yeah, and it, it didn't really exist in London at that time. There was Franco Man could just start now. And it was just phenomenal. And it had one in Brixton and one in um, Chiswick, I think, at that time. Uh, and there was another pizzeria called Lanska Pizzeria. And there was one in Clapham called Donna Margarita. And that was kind of it for Neapolitan pizza at that time. Um, so we, we just hadn't tried it. And we just fell in love with it. And we were like, this is what we want to recreate. What's special about Neapolitan pizza? So it has this kind of like, I guess it's particularly in the UK, the sort of famous pizza words are like thin and crispy. That's what people want. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. But Neapolitan is very much like it's kind of doughy and bready and like floppy. Oh, and you is that is that like the style of your pizza? Yeah. Like you almost want to fold it. You fold it you and fold it's got, it. it's got, got no it. like structure It's not integrity. like Pizza Hut type pizza, which is like very... Yeah, you could pick up a triangle and it would be... Yes, it would stay as a triangle. This, this is, is like... like it would just go... Like, uh, yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. Oh, so okay. it's yeah. kind of... It's a very different thing. You know, and everyone always jokes about eat, people who eat pizza with a knife and fork in the uk but actually go to naples loads of people eat pizza with a knife and fork because mm. it's the way to do it <laughs> so um yeah we discovered neapolitan pizza that style yeah. and it is a very specific style uh happens to be the like birthplace of pizza as well mm. uh, and yeah and we should have never looked back really okay so you come back to the uk yeah and then you've got one van one van yeah. So how does how does so, the business so plan the, start? So the business yeah. plan was yeah. <laughs> we would uh, plan, quote unquote, uh, was we would do events. So we'd go and do like weddings, you know, funerals, bar mitzvahs, whatever, whatever you, whatever event you've got, we'll turn up and make pizza sure. for a degree price. We quickly real, realized that a, it's really hard to build a name for yourself that way because you kind of need a place that people can go and try. It. If you're going to get people excited about a product, they've got to be able to go and try it yep. off their own steam. So that that was a no no. And second, it's just. It's just so incredibly stressful, like being responsible for like the most important day in your life. You know, mm. if you're going to cater someone's wedding, the stress factor of like getting that wrong or whatever is, is just too high to deal with. Yeah. So we very quickly moved away from that and we we're like, no, we want a market stall. We want a place where you can come and come and actually buy it. So we started emailing all the councils to say, like, you know, do you have a, a pitch? There was probably about seven or eight like really great food markets in London. Emailed all of them, constantly just heard back saying, no, we have no space. There's a waiting list as long as your arm. It just, it, you know, most of them were like, just don't even bother joining the list because, you know, it's going to be decades. Oh, wow. And then, um, so then we were like, well, this just can't be right because we're going to these markets and they're not full. So we basically started going down to the markets, taking pictures of us standing in empty spaces yep. and emailing the council and being like, we stood in this space from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. for five days in a row. No one came. Yeah. How can you possibly tell me your market's full? Oh. And I think we basically just like hammered them so much until they just eventually were like, it would be easier to just give them the pitch than it would to. So yeah, eventually the first council to give up was Westminster. They gave us a pitch on Berwick Street Market. We paid £10 a day. for our little, it? Yeah, it was amazing. Oh, that's reasonable. Little little parking spot on the market. And we could trade there from uh, 11 till, well, we could trade there from nine. Obviously no one wants pizza at nine until, uh, I think you could trade till five. Okay. So we basically went and did lunch service every day. It's only ten pounds a day. Ten pounds a day. Is yeah. that normal, or is that surprisingly cheap? Uh, it's still the same, and it's kind of like that classic, like you know, it's kind of it was agreed decades and decades ago, right. and they can't change it. And there are people there who trade there every day, whose grandparents traded there wow. at the same rate. I mean, to be clear, the ten pound a day gives you a lovely pitch, but like zero infrastructure. So when we were there, you got you know, you had no electricity nowhere to store anything. Ah. So you had to literally drive the van into Soho, unload, set up the van, 
uh, and then drive, you know, drive it away again, find someone to park that van, come back, set up the store. Yep. So it, it was not, you know, it was not rosy. It, we basically set about the first month was like, how do we make this easier? Yep. Because driving a van in every day, especially to Soho, is just a, a living nightmare. So we made friends with the uh, landlord of the pub, which is called The Endurance on Berwick Street, uh, convinced him to let us uh, rent his basement for £50 a week, which we did. So right. we made the yep. dough, started making the dough in that basement. Then we started to slowly but surely convince the guys, the fruit and veg guys, which is at the time the market was mostly fruit and veg guys. Yep. Um, we convinced them that we were like not bad people yeah. i think they were just very suspicious of us turning up trying yeah. to i mean they called us the apprentice for a long time because oh, we, really? we were like running around like headless chickens trying to like do anything <laughs> we convinced them that we were like a force for good they they then rented us their uh, fridge space in the lockup that they had there uh then i convinced my old advertising agency to let us, let us park the van underneath their agency in a car parking space which is now the soho hotel and you slowly over the first sort of six months we built this like infrastructure around oh. the business there's a lot of convincing a lot of so convincing. unusual because i'm so used to online businesses and stuff where you literally don't have to speak to anyone yeah this is very like oh yeah you're it's, out there chatting to the pub guy chatting to the fruit and veg people constant. chatting to the yeah and i think you know again love it that's absolutely me and my brother's thing but it is also it comes with you know all of the kind of human uh you know failings and just sort of what's the word you know inaccuracies i guess of like you know suddenly the pub landlord on one day is like actually i've changed my mind you're out you've got to be out by 4 p.m i've loaded all your stuff onto the street and you've got to go and like reconvince him that it's actually okay and uh so you know there's that stuff there's you know just, just that it's never fixed it's never like and i think that's the one thing about hospitality but particularly street food the number one asset you can have is resilience yeah just like those little things that change at the last minute, just being able to deal with it. Mm. If we take a day, a random day in those in those first six months, yeah, compare it to a day in your life as like working in corporate, what's the contrast? The well, the, the main the main contrast for me are just were, were two. Like one, you have no real context of the kind of financial, particularly in advertising, because it's all you know. And I was junior anyway, but like you have no feeling that you're really earning a, a wage. You're just kind of doing something. And at the end, you get this packet, this pay packet that just sort of land, you know, on the last Friday of the month, a pay packet arrives. But yeah. you, you don't really link the two, I found. It's yeah. just like, you're doing loads of stuff and it's all happening and then pay packet arrives. But then the next day, you're just doing the stuff again. Mm. Whereas when you're running your own thing, you're really kind of like constantly doing the sums of your head of like, well, if we did that and that's a day of the month, is that going to, you know, deliver enough to get to get us to that next line that next yep. finish line so that constant like weighing up of like what you're putting your time into and your energy into yeah and is it gonna pay which you just don't i think do in a corporate life yeah. i mean i didn't anyway um but the second one and probably the bigger one is just that you know if you work in a big corporate office there's someone's call to fix anything that's not your exact responsibility so it's like this thing is broken that thing's gone wrong i need a point of view on that you know, you send the email out and you wait for that response to come back and then you kind of funnel it into the next part of the thing. You're kind mm. of, you've constantly got the support network around you. Start your own business, you have no support network whatsoever. Everything is you. Mm. If something's broken, you've got to fix it with a spanner, it's you. Yep. If, uh, you know, you've lost, or you, you know, you put your cash down and someone's robbed it, that's your problem. If you've made the dough incorrectly, that's your problem. The van's broken down, it's your problem. If it rains, it's your problem. 
everything's your problem, which I don't know. Like, I guess some people get a kick out of that because yeah. they're like, cool, well, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to solve those problems, bring it on, and I feel like I'm a capable person and that's exciting. Mm. And I guess, you know, that kind of like changes as good of a rest, uh, changes as good as a rest type feeling of like never a dull day because you just don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, whereas other people obviously are like, no, this is my skill set. Why in God's name would I try and fix a van or make dough if my skill set is only in selling or mending computers or yeah. the law? Um, and I think, you know, that uh, undoubtedly that makes sense, right? Logically, if you're really good at the law, your time is not well spent fixing vans and making dough. Hmm. You're never going to be financially. Your best possible bet is to apply yourself to the law and make that work for you. But I guess no one logically starts a business. I don't know. Maybe they do. I think they probably, that's probably a bit too much of a sweeping statement. No one logically starts a restaurant business. That's for sure. <laughs> sure. Um, what would you say to people who might be thinking, you know what? I want to quit my job to start a business because I want more free time. Ha! <laughs> I mean, there is no such thing as free time. Everything is a blur. Like calendars, you know, those little blocks you get in calendars, like, you know, like 11, 10 to 11, this will happen. It's just nonsense. It's all just gray. Everything's the same. But I, I, I guess, you know, another way to look at it is like, that's all. Free. It's whether you see that as all free time or all work. That, that's the fundamental dichotomy there of like, if you see having no 10 to 11 a.m. meetings and no places you have to be at certain times as, freeing then start your own business and you'll absolutely love it because it's just constantly like mm. that whereas if you see that as like I, I i cannot you know i need to know when i'm doing x and when i'm doing y then you're never gonna you know it's, it doesn't work like that it's just constantly changing yeah and to what extent can you clock off at like 5 p.m 6 p.m kind of thing when you have a business do you know what increasingly I can now, I, can, I could clock off and I could go, do you know what, I'm not going to do that and I'm trying to be better at it. But unfortunately, I think it's just, it, it always is there. You know, you'll be sitting there clocked off watching something on telly and somebody comes and be like, oh, that's, that's cool. I wonder if we could try that in the pizzeria or yeah. like, oh, you see an advert for something. You're like, oh, it's interesting that they've said it, you know, said it that way. I wonder how that affects us or, you know, you, you, you do just never, ever, ever switch off, especially when you've got a phone next to you and you can immediately Google it and then you're off, then you're off, then you're off down the rabbit hole again. Yep. And my wife, rightly, is just livid about that. She's like, <laughs> you can't do it. Like, you've got to stop. Like, if you don't stop. Um, and I find if I lie, you know, if I lie in bed at night and I'm not listening to a podcast or something, my brain just racing and like, yeah. oh, well, what about if we did that? And, you know, and I think uh, it's a blessing and a curse. It's nice to have a sort of thing that, drives you forward in many ways and like gives you gives you ways to like approach stuff and it's nice to have a point of view on things that you know how could i make that work for me but yeah it's also it must also be lovely and i definitely do dream about this to be like i tell you when i most dream about it is exactly about now when you clock out of the office uh friday bank holiday yeah. And you like you walk out of four because it's Friday and everyone's like, whatever, just go home. You go home, you're like, I literally have nothing to worry about now until Tuesday. Mm. That never happens. That mm. never, ever, ever happens to me. Um, because restaurants, particularly, again, they never stop. I go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. You know, the, the guys are still out there. The guys and girls are still out there doing incredible things with Peter Pilgrim. So, you know, Sunday afternoon watching the football. Yep, Peter Pilgrim is still open. Yeah. And so, like, it is a weird feeling of it, like, you know, it just, it just, it's a never, you know, and the worst thing you can do to a restaurant, quite generally, is stop. 
Like the momentum, we closed basically twice a year for like a full team party and we closed all the restaurants. Guarantee the next day is when you have the most like mechanical issues, the most like delivery problems. Because if, if the flywheel stops, yep. it, you've got, you know, it really takes a lot to get it going again. Um, and I guess, you know, if you plot my particular curve involved in that at the beginning it was just us and we were very much hands-on with every single thing so you never had these like rug pull moments because you were just there i mean they they happened but they kind of happened live and you were just dealing with it then you had the bit where you know we weren't necessarily in the restaurants at nine o'clock at night but you'd be there trying to switch off and you'd get the call being like this is blown up or that thing's gone wrong or someone's just coming and tried to mug us or and there that was my worst time because then i would just be like right you know you're trying to trying to you know calm and suddenly you've got to like drop everything and rush off and fix some like much bigger problem um and i guess you know we're lucky now and that like we have grown we have got like you know really amazing teams and we've got a fantastic managing director and he's got ops director below him and then you know head of operations ops managers each store has a manager and assistant manager like it has to be pretty nuclear for it to get to me now yeah but that said i always want to know it always read the reports you know it's, if something does go wrong, it's like, how can we be better mm. next time? How can we stop it happening? But that middle bit where you don't have the management, but you do have the kind of freedom, I actually found the worst. Mm. Yeah, the feeling of like having having your own business. So like my my girlfriend has recently quit her day job to nice. go full-time on her business. And she's like, you know, it gets to 11 p.m. And she's like, oh, but I've just had a moment of inspiration where I feel so excited about this thing. And like back in the day when she had the day job, she was always being like, hey, Ellie, why are you working at 11 p.m.? Come on, like, you know, yeah. like work-life balance and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And, and now she gets it. And I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. And back in the day, we used to be like, you know, when we're on holiday, like, you know, why are you working all the time? And now she's like, man, I don't have time to work during during normal times. They're like, oh, we can do so much work on holiday. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> there you go, you <laughs> it's see. Just the, <laughs> the whole like psychology changes, I guess, when it's your thing. A hundred percent. there's like, there's a, like a really powerful reason to work on it massively and i yeah. you know i think the obvious again very obvious cliche but the obvious connection there is, is kids you see people with kids and you're like oh i would never do it that way or like you know i could handle that whatever and then yeah. when you have kids of your own you're like oh right okay this is this is it this is what it's all about and it does just never stop mm. we have a question here from asma from our telegram community would you recommend working full-time or part-time as you start your business so that you have a stable income already or would you recommend that one invests all of their time into their startup I personally found it beneficial to 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 test it more and like you know not not throw everything out and go like I'm out done. So we did quit, we did go and do this trip, we did build the business, but in the very very early days it was like look this is crazy. We're not going to be able to both both do this. So yeah. I I got I came back. I quit my job in advertising advertising Adidas <laughs> and got a job advertising Stana Stairlifts uh, and started doing that like in parallel. And I guess we, we when we started out, did a lot of testing of like, right, here's, you know, we want to start a pizza business. Let's get 50 mates around for dinner party and do pizza and see how that goes. And if that's good and we enjoy it and we kind of, then you can kind of go, right, what's the next thing? The next thing in our case was, let's go to my old advertising agency and park up outside and do pizza for lunch for them and see how they get on. Yeah. And then the next thing is like, let's go and do a one night event and like, you know, pay a hundred quid. And, do, and I think that is the way to do it. Obviously, it depends what your business is, but like, you've got, you've got, I, to my mind, like doing some basic, <sighs> basic testing, even if it's like, I'm going to take a week holiday and go and just do this for a week. Yeah. 
is a great way to do it. You don't need to throw the baby out of the bathwater. Yeah, that's very much my view of it as well. I think there are some businesses where you don't have that option, but like broadly, you know, I, I think actually having a job and doing doing the thing, doing the business on the side forces you to prioritize. Yeah. Because I found that two years into two years after I was I did the doctor stuff and suddenly I had spare time, my output reduced in terms of number of videos we were making. Because yeah. I was spending all, spending all my time doing the bullshit that I just didn't have time to do back yeah. in the day. And I was like, well, I can now reply to all these emails and like hop on calls with all these people who want to hop on calls in the end. And it's like, before I know it, my entire calendar is booked up with like unproductive stuff. I discovered Calendly and I'm like, oh my God, I can just give a link out. And it's like, bloody hell, I'm on Zoom calls all day. Oh shit. Like, and it took about a year to realize that, oh, back when I was doing this as a side hustle, I intuitively prioritized the most important things and ignored everything else. Yeah. Now I need to actively prioritize the most important things and ignore everything else, which requires figuring out what's the goal what are the metrics that matter? Yeah. What is the needle moving stuff? Yeah. What's the 80-20? And like desperately trying to ignore all the other opportunities that are coming my way. Yeah. And I think that, that I mean, that's exactly, you know, the classic thing of like, you know, you want something done, ask someone busy type thing. And I think, I think that's exactly right. I think we had a, that sort of similar inflection point of like, because we started out with like no plan and no, you know, we just knew we needed, we had this thing and we needed to like get it out there and grow it. So we, we started out just doing everything. It was like, yeah. yes to everything, which is why we ended up in car parking spaces and Hammersmith and all that kind of stuff. But but it always it always led to something. And it was like the right thing to do, I believe, to just yeah. like throw yourself into everything. and like. But you're right. Very quickly, that becomes overwhelming. Very quickly, you are doing stuff that's like, do you know what? We could have been better off doing this or that or the other. And I think once you kind of – someone talks to me about this analogy of like you're pushing a ball up a hill – and then you go over the you go you go onto the downhill bit once you've kind of got to a certain level, and then your job is to like direct the ball rather than like push the ball. Oh, yeah, that's nice. And I think I think that that was an inflection point that I think we kind of wrestled with a bit because I was still very much like, no, we're still going up the hill. And I think my brother was like, we're over the hill. We need to stop saying yes to this stuff at the edge and just focus on the pizzeria or you know making the product better or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and so. Yeah, I think I think we still though we still always get our heads turned by like shiny new stuff. Mm. It's always like, oh, but that would be wouldn't it be cool to do? You know, go and do Glastonbury. And I think the business now looks at us like, what? Like, why would we do Glastonbury? Like, we know we're not going to make any money. It's going to be super stressful. We haven't got you know. We have to drag people out of the pizzeria, so we call loads of stress for people who aren't even at Glastonbury because they're all their teammates are in a field with you. And no one, you're not going to get any publicity about it, really. I just, I don't get it. And we're just like, oh, but, you know, it's cool to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, I think, you know, the, and I kind of like that because I think, you know, another, I think mine and my brother's role, we're now, we know, we've always been founders. We've never been CEOs or whatever. But like, I think our role kind of is to like throw in that stuff that's like the grown ups all go like, that makes no, literally no sense. Mm. Why would we do that? Um and, you know, 90% of the time they're right yeah. and we don't do it. But actually sometimes I'm like, no, no, we really do actually think this will move the dial forward. And like we will, so you know, quite recently we've just done our 10th birthday and we were like, we need to go and like revisit, you know, reestablish the pilgrimage thing. It's such a big part of our brand and we need to like reinvigorate our menu. We've got to be staying ahead of everyone else. And we basically came up with this idea of we need another ridiculous vehicle to do it in. So we, we got a Vespa. And we worked with this amazing company to build a sidecar that turned into a pizzeria, like a transformer. Oh, and sick. so we have the world's first Vespa pizzeria. Wow. And then we drove that to Naples and we drove it around Naples for 10 days, making 10 films about new menu items. And like we had this incredible full circle moment where 
we'd first ever tasted pizza in Damakeli, super revered tempera pizza in Naples. They allowed us to come into Damakeli and do a pop-up in their restaurant, take it over for a whole night, yeah. put pizza pills out the door. Wow. And it was like, that's 10 years of us like knowing those guys and working with the Naples community and like building relationships. And it's amazing. Nice. It's an amazing thing to have done. But like, I guess when we first proposed this idea, everyone was like, this is, this is nonsense. Like we definitely mm. shouldn't do this. And actually it's been a, it's been a great way to reestablish the business. The amount of, the amount of sort of coverage we've got from it has been great. Nice. Okay, so you're in this market for the ten pounds a day. You got the pizza. Yeah. What are what's what's like the daily profit and loss of the business when you're <laughs> when you're a pizza food van in in a market? <laughs> so we sold pizza for five quid. Yeah. Uh, so five pound a pizza. It was quite a bit smaller probably than the ones we make now, but um, yeah, five pound for a margarita, and we a great day would be five hundred pounds. Didn't take cards. Oh. Okay. So so di- didn't take hard. So 500 pounds in, in cash. So 100 pizzas. 100 pizzas. That would okay. be a good day. I think our record day ever was like 120 pizzas. Okay. On that market store. Yeah. Then you'd go and do something like British summertime. Yeah. And you could you could happily do 800 pizzas in a day. Ah. Okay. And suddenly, and you're probably charging a little bit more because it's a festival. So that's yeah. when you're starting to make like real money. Yeah. But, you know, again, like it's so scary. It's such a weird thing. But like, no cards. So you're literally at the end of the day, you're there with a box of cash. Why, why didn't you take cards? Because it was 2012. There was no way to take card, cards yeah, on a market. I guess POS wasn't a thing. Didn't exist. Izettle and all that. Just like Izettle maybe. Coming around was, then. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, it didn't exist in 2012. Yeah. yeah Did 20, not exist. In, in 2014, I started using that for some stuff. Yeah. But like, tw- yeah, 2012 was like old school. It's proper <laughs> yeah. old school. So you like. You get like a world pay enterprise account or some shit like that to accept it, cards. Genuinely, or... one of our biggest challenges every day was what, how much change we had. Really? Like, <laughs> did we have enough, like, literally coins? And I still, I still fucking hate change to this day. I never have cash. I never, because I just remember the trauma of dealing with cash. And then I remember in 2013, so vividly, because we'd started the business on a Barclay card, I emailed Barclay card and said, hey, we're opening a pizzeria next month. Um, I fucking hate cash. Can we just make it completely cashless? Can we yeah. be the UK's first cashless restaurant? Yeah. And this was in 2013. And we had a meeting in their big, tall tower in, I think it was in Canary Wharf or something like that. Um, and they were up for it. And then we got overruled by all of our investors. They were like, really? this is nonsense. What? Like, wh- yeah. Why? They were like, you can't, you can't run a restaurant and turn people away if they only have cash. And I was like, we absolutely can. And they were like, no, no, you can't. You can't do that. It's too risky. Got overruled. And I didn't win that argument. I think I basically had that argument once a year, every year, for seven or eight years. And I only the first time I won it was COVID. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, it makes no, cash makes no sense. It's like, it's you have to ensure, you know, you have people walking out of your restaurants after, you know, a, bu- a busy weekend. You get a young guy or girl walking to the bank with like thousands of pounds strapped to their back through soho i'm like it's just not safe for that person straight yeah. off, straight off you have to pay more for the insurance yeah it's just it's slower it's a faff you've got to have change yeah it's got to be stored on site the whole <laughs> thing is just a nightmare it's like cards are just like dreamy so yeah all of our pizzerias now are cashless nice. finally thank goodness so first six months you're in in the market stall yeah so that's 2013 March 2012 was we sold our first pizza. Nice. And then how does the business grow over the next like few years? Like what was the what were the big So we started that market stall. 500 pounds was a good day. Um uh and you know we 
we basically do the marketing store for lunch at least four days, mostly. We do it at least four days a week. We okay, sorry, so 500 pounds is a good day of which how much is profit? Like, well, what are the margins on a business like that? I think, like, quite honestly, we were investing all of our profit in, like, things, in, like, doing other stuff. Okay. So, obviously, you go and do a festival. Yep. They take a pitch fee. So, you guys aren't making any money? No. Personally. I think we, yeah. we took 100 pounds each a week. Wow, okay. <laughs> that was that was the money we were so making. So, how did you sustain yourselves during that period? Uh I was very lucky that my wife uh, had a, a job. I mean, she worked also for an advertising agency. Okay. It certainly wasn't like an amazing, you know, high salary or anything. But yeah. that was, you know, that was a huge help. She wasn't my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend. Then my fiance. So I was, yeah. Uh, we, we, were, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. I had a stable job. Yeah. Then we got engaged. And then about a week later, I was like, I think I'm going to quit my job and start <laughs> a stupid pizza thing. How did her family feel about this? Uh, I think they were confused. Yeah. <laughs> Slash, um yeah again more eyebrow raises more yeah. like you sure this is the right thing yeah um i think just on that point i'd like to make this point mm. I, I feel so so strongly that it is the right thing i think you know if you're if you have that thing in you whatever that is to, to want to start a business the longer you wait thinking that you're getting gaining invaluable experience the more your life is like crystallizing into a thing and yeah. you have a mortgage and you have you know kids maybe and you have all these things that actually do make the risk you're taking a bigger risk and i just think you know that this idea of like oh it's, you know you i just think you've got to go for it early like yeah. if you're going to do it do it as early as you possibly can that's not so you can't do it later and obviously if you've got a great job and you've built up a big nest egg and that, that's a whole different conversation but i i don't know i i, I it annoys me that we don't encourage people straight after their A levels, definitely straight after university to 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 go and have a crack at something. I know, you know, you've got to have the money, but we we didn't. We put it on a credit card. Yeah. Like I think having a crack then is the best way. Because I just don't think I think the more you kind of learn what you think is the right way to do something, the more you know, when the road's not that and you have to deviate, yeah. you don't deviate. You just go, no, but I really believe that this is the way to do it. Yes, I know that some people then create Facebook and that's fine. I get that. But most people don't. Mm. Most people have their, you know, their set worldview. They set out into the market. The market tells them you're kind of 60% of the way there, but it's actually here. And there's, you know, the more, if you've done it for 10 years and you're super set in your ways, I don't think you, I think you're harder to deviate. Yeah. One of the things I think I've, I've heard you talk about before is founder's naivety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what do you, what do you mean by that? I, I I just think so many things that we have in our business that I love about our business still were came to be passed because we'd never worked in restaurants before. We'd worked behind the bar in our parents' pub, but we'd never like run in a big, you know, worked in a big restaurant company. And just the way, you know, <coughs> the, way, the way you treat the team, how you kind of, you know, obviously famously restaurants are you know hard hours long hours we were always like no one works more than these hours if you work more than your contracted hours it's a problem not a, not a benefit yeah. you know giving splitting tips between chefs in front of house mm. at the time it was like no no the front of house take all the tips mm. sometimes they give some to the chefs and i'm like well what so i've gone in i've had a nice pizza i leave a tip and the chefs use none of that it's like mm. yeah that's what happens and i'm like that's nonsense so we changed that and we split it 50-50 and we still do. Yeah. And little things like that, I think. And the more you kind of, you know, have experience in industry, the more you just kind of follow the herd. And I think, mm. and that's, to me, not the definition of starting your own thing. We had a question from Patrick from our my Deep Diver Telegram community, which is, what are the key things that you wished you knew before opening a food, food business? <laughs> I wish I knew 
I guess, quite honestly, more about the financial bit. Mm. Like I knew nothing about a PL, nothing about like I'd never even heard of a PL, had no kind of concept of like VAT or like and I think we tried to sort of plot some stuff out, but I did it so fundamentally wrong. And the, the fact is that like running, particularly a restaurant business, understanding the numbers helps you understand the business. Yeah. And actually looking at the numbers uh, from afar, you can tell a business that's like a happy business or a sad business just yeah. by looking at like the productivity, for example. So that their labor percentage, how much, how much money they're taking as a restaurant, how much they're spending on labor. Yeah. You can tell which ones are teams that are struggling or yeah. like not delivering at the right productivity level or are maybe a new team or versus the ones that are like absolutely flying, setting yeah. their ways. And they're, they're the ones who are happy because they, they, everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone's got their role. Yep. They've got the tools to do the job well. Everything's flying. And you can see that. And I think, you know, we just didn't know anything about numbers at all. Mm. I'm quite a numbers guy. Like I did, you know, lots of mass A levels. I did psychology at uni which was all statistics and stuff. And so like kind of really delved into that. But we kind of, we spent a long time like learning it yeah. and then sh and then sheltering everyone from it. Because we were like, well, no one wants to know the numbers because it's just the boring bit. Like mm. the fun bit is running the restaurant, having fun and like creating a party atmosphere. But the managers definitely don't want to see this. So we'll, we'll keep that away from them. Let them run the party. And actually that's so not true. Like numbers just free everyone up to know like what success looks like. Yeah. I think you I think you often think um as a founder I guess that like a blank sheet of paper is everyone's dream of like why don't you just go and do it your way and you know we'll absolutely be here to support you but like hit you know just go go for your life it's your pizzeria and actually 90% of people don't want that yeah. at the very least they want some lines on the paper yeah. and they want you know maybe a couple of headers of like yeah. how do you fill this paper out and I think we started the business thinking that everyone loved the blank bit of paper. Mm. And what you've absolutely got to do is make sure there is definitely blank space for people to fill. But, and obviously everyone's different, but the vast majority want some kind of framework to work in. That's so true. Like I, this is a big realization I've had in the last like 12 months as well, where I thought like everyone in my team wants the same autonomy that I do. And yeah. so it's like, great. What, what that looks like is me not giving them direction because they can, they can obviously make it up and they prefer it. And then literally everyone on the team was like, no, like we like autonomy, but we also like having a direction and yeah. we like knowing what success looks like to you because yeah. like fundamentally, if it's not like successful to you, like <laughs> similarly, like in the last six months, various people in the team, we've, we've been saying to the team that, you know, we've got someone in charge of our YouTube channel and the podcast and social media and stuff. And we're like, we're saying to them, we, we want you guys to be the sort of the CEOs of your own departments. Yeah. And then one, like an immediate question is like, cool, what's the budget? And we're like, huh. That's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I don't know, like uh, unlimited. And I'm like, well, it's not unlimited because, like, like you know, if we spent two million on this thing, you'd probably have a problem with it. I'm like, yeah. So what's the budget? I'm like, okay, yeah, this is actually us worth us sitting down and figuring out. Yeah, I, <laughs> and now I, people I, have a budget. Now they get it. They're like, okay, I've got 100k to play with to be able to do all this this stuff. Yeah, but what you so it's so interesting because I for years hate budgets, and I went and my kind of business mentor person, not a mentor, but like someone who I look up to, yeah. is John Timson. You've heard of John Timson? So Timson. he runs, he was, he used to run, his son now runs it. Yeah. Timson's yeah. Uh, like the Timson shoe test. shops. Have you come across the Timson test? No, what's that? The Timson test is like a, from the Timson like shops. Yeah. It's like, uh, like 10 questions that every um, manager should be able to answer about their employees. I've like, not seen this. Oh, it's, it's really interesting. So my CEO coach uses the Timson test 
with like the picture of the little Timson like shoe shop yeah. thing. It's like, you know, uh, how many kids do they have? What are the names of the kids? When's their birthday? Yeah, What's yeah. their favorite? Blah, blah, blah. That is 100% a John Timson thing. And uh, I've not heard it yeah. described as the Timson <laughs> thing, test. But like he, his whole thing is um, he calls it upside down management. So yeah. it's like the most important person in your business is the person serving the customer. Yep. And they should have as much autonomy as they need to, to do that job. Yep. Uh, and and to be able to like make the customer happy, so I think every employee in Timson's can spend five hundred pounds of company money to write a customer complaint without any kind of approval process. Mm, nice. uh, they have no central epos, so like every store, the manager knows how many key fobs you need to order that week, yep. how many they sold last week. They have a budget. Um, the, the reason I got into this is the budget thing. They have a budget in the store of like this is your sales target for the week, and everything above that they get a third of. Oh, nice. So, like, you know, this is what you've got to do. But if you beat it, you can have a big chunk of it. Yeah, nice. Um, but he was talking, I went out to meet him. Weirdly, my grandmother decorated a house for him once in, <laughs> in Cheshire. So she's like, oh, yeah, I've met John Timpson, sent him an email. Somehow he agreed to let us go up, me and my brother, for a day and chat to him. Yeah. Well, Just like solid. such an inspirational guy. Mm. But um, he was like, I hate budgets. They're nonsense. You write down a number on the 1st of January and you're telling me that, like, the the 31st of December that you'd have been right and mm. that it's, it's like I, I literally do a budget because I have to because the bank make me but I make no one stick to it oh. like I want I, I want to know I want to know I, I want people to just sort of feel it I guess and like you know I don't want anyone to be like punished for a number that I wrote down on the 1st of January but also don't want to hold anyone back because I feel like if you hit that finish line and you're done that changes mm. your changes your energy a bit um, whether he's right or wrong on the whole no budget thing but I guess in your example, you know, people do want to know what the number is. Mm. And I would say the best, you know, the best work that we've ever done, like creatively or, you know, that's moved the business forward was always done on a shoestring rather than like with a massive pile of money behind it. Yeah. But you wouldn't, if the budget's 100 grand and some like absolute game changer of an opportunity comes along and it's 200 grand. Yeah. You wouldn't yeah, want no, to exactly. be like, oh, well, this isn't going to, yeah, we'll, we'll ignore that because it's never going to work. You yeah. want to be like. This was my resistance to budgets because I was like, guys, like, think think more about like PL. Like, if you, if you know, for example, yeah. we, we get X amount of sponsorship dollars per YouTube video. We know that that's like what we get per YouTube video. And therefore, like, almost anything to make YouTube videos better, we can justify because of the absurd amount of. Um, but then, yeah, it's like, I think. It's it's useful for for the team to know it's like hey, it's a hundred k rather than a million, for example. Yeah, but also that that hundred k is like actually fairly malleable. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the important thing is knowing that it's malleable. And we've yeah. you know as we've grown, we've had to put in more budgets, particularly for different departments. Yeah, and I'm always like, it's it's a guide. It's a guide. It's not like the target. It's mm. not you know if you spend more than it, it's a problem. If you spend less than it, you're going to get a pat on the back. It's just a guide. But yeah, you want people to go like, oh, but this is outside the budget, but it'd be amazing, and take that kind of attitude. So. Peter Pilgrim's now has been going on for 10 years. 10 um, years. What's the, what are the stats of the business these days, if you don't mind sharing, like revenue margins, that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, so we're, we're, we're 24 pizzerias, um, which, oh. uh, yeah, is more than I could have imagined at, when we had our little market <laughs> stall. 24 pizzerias. Uh, we employ just over 500 people. 500? Yeah. Bloody uh, hell. Which is madness, yeah. like, absolute madness. We had our staff party uh, last week, actually our summer party and yeah that's the f that's when you realize it the most when you see how much does it cost to do a party for 500 people uh it costs a lot of money <laughs> uh it's it, do you know what? it costs less because because of the industry we're in like yeah. a lot of the, we did it actually with our good friends at camden brewery oh, nice. yeah. um and they paid for all the beer yeah so like you know that that's a big chunk of it yeah. um but but no it's it's but it's it's great like, it's <laughs> you know it's it's 
it's good to do that stuff. What's interesting? Sorry, I keep going off on weird tangents, but like <laughs> young young people are different to us. And I'm not saying you're also a young person. I'm very much middle aged. I'm 40 now, and like they don't, you know, whereas kind of slightly going out and having a lot of drinks, and that was kind of like the that was that was the definition of a good time. Like kind of like getting a bit mashed up. That's not that's not what everyone wants right now. Mm. It's like there's a whole thing around like do young people really want a party mm. or do they would they prefer to just have a day off? And I don't know. Part one half of me makes that quite sad. We've got we've got to work really hard. You know, in our industry, we are about you know showing people a good time and going out and that kind of thing. And so I think you know I think people who work in that industry do want a party and they do want to mm. they do want to kind of engage with their peers and it's great seeing like you know across the people move around different pizzerias and like seeing those connections re reestablished and stuff I I love it but I guess it's I guess the point I'm trying to make is the danger is that because I love it does that mean that they love it mm. and you've got to be constantly aware of like is that actually the best thing you know with that chunk of money whatever it is is that the best thing you can do for your team or actually would they prefer to do something more wholesome or would they prefer to literally just have a day off yeah. or what is it and so you've got to kind of constantly work on that stuff but yeah 500 people uh you know with the incredible to see them all in one place uh we we've just finished our year end end of um june and uh, a th- turnover of 27 million net of vat and with an ebitda of about 2.4 uh so like oh okay interesting so 27 million top like re- like revenue basically yeah after you paid vat yeah and then ebitda is like your operating profit yeah. kind of yeah operating profit exactly of 2.4 million yeah that's 10 10 percent ish 10 percent ish is kind of uh a sort of target for restaurants but it depends okay, what you're yeah. doing right we we always well a number of things yeah. we've always reinvested all of our profit back in we've yeah. never really taken it we've never ever taken a dividend or anything yeah. like that so you know we're very much like putting it back into grow yeah and i think we've always really wanted to grow at the right rate yep the, the endless debate we have with our board is about the uh, head office percentage cost Wait, so you, you have a so you have a pizzeria yeah if you take one if you've got 24 pizzerias sure. take one yes. unit you know, a, a standard pizzeria might take, let's say they might take 30 to 40K a week. They might take as in as bring in, in. Like, That would be a revenue. Okay, sure. So that's what, like 1.5 to 2 million yeah, yeah. revenue. Uh, and you would hope that you would convert that 20%. Some of ours convert higher than that. Some would convert lower. Into EBITDA. Into EBITDA. Okay. So you've got your your um, 2 million at 20% would be like 400, 400, yeah. 400, 400 EBITDA. Uh, and then obviously that all goes into a big pot, and then yes. you have your central overhead, which is your head office. That obviously is not. None of them are revenue generating yeah. essentially, so they're like people that. who are like supporting, making sure that those businesses sure. work really well. So that'd be marketing or finance, finance HR, legal, HR, yeah. HR op- operations also sits in there. So mm. our operations team would have, you know, our managing partners, as they're called, would have five pizzerias that they're responsible for. Okay, they, their cost would sit in head office rather yeah. than in that pizzeria. Okay, um, uh, anyway, so the, the big debate is what percentage of your revenue you're spending on your head office. So that's if it was 10%, if your revenue is 27 million, you'd be spending 2.7 million on okay. your head office. Sure. And from my point of view, I'm like, I want to grow right. I want to grow great. I want to make sure a business with meat on the bones that we're yeah. making the right decisions. You know, we've just applied for a B Corp. We're on our 2030 um, 
journey, you know, net zero journey, all that, you know, I want to make sure that the team's supported, that we have the right training in place, that we're doing all that stuff. And that costs a lot of money, all of that stuff. And therefore, obviously, your EBITDA percentage is reduced. Whereas you could absolutely run that business on a much, much smaller overhead. And you could make a lot more money on an annual basis. But I, I would suggest that, you know, your business will be at the best maintaining and at worst probably degrading. Yeah. And so it's how do you, we, we've always been like, it's a long game. We were literally, I remember when we were carrying gas bottles above our head on the market, we'd be like, it's a long game. Yeah. Everything's about like, how do we, how do we shoot forward rather than yeah. like do best now? Mm. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of like, so the point I'm making is that obviously we're blown away by where the business has got to, yeah. but it's all about reinvesting into the future and also making sure that we're doing it the right way. And we're not like breaking people or pushing people too hard or making it not enjoyable because yeah. at that point it's like, what's the point? Yeah. Like, you know, you start a business because you want, <laughs> yeah. you want something that's better than a, the corporate job. Yeah, exactly. So and I just not think having that, fun along the way, then if you're not enjoying it, like what is the actual point? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we've always tried to do that, that right. And we've definitely made a lot of mistakes, but Broadly, I think, you know, we've, we've, I don't think we've kind of done wrong by anyone along the way or tried yeah. to kind of exploit anyone or, you know, do anything. You know, we've, we've, we've tried to do it what I would call the right way. Whether we always have, I'll let other people decide, I guess. And so I'm curious about this, this bottom line, actually, so, so top line and bottom line numbers. Um, to, what was the, what's the growth graph looked like over time? Has it been like exponential or has it been like linear or like what has it been upsy downy? Uh, well, it's got a sort of, uh, it's got a sort of COVID shaped hole in it, yeah. which um, doesn't really help. But uh, do you know what? It's been very slow. And I think what, well, I was, it's been exponential, but not, I don't know, it's not kind of curving away to infinity. Sure, yeah. It's sort of like, it's sort of exponential and then it's sort of plateaued yeah. and sort of, I don't know what you'd call that. Yeah, whatever. Exponential <laughs> to, to plateau. Yep. I don't know. So it's definitely sped up, but yep. we've never kind of like carried on the speeding up. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, what always surprises me about, you know, people who start a successful business, particularly a restaurant business where like every site is so different and so like completely unique in its location and yeah. challenges and stuff. People open one really successful site and they're like, this is going really well, really enjoying this, like really good. You know, I'm on the ground a lot, blah, 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 blah. And then their next step is like, cool, I'm going to go and do four more next year. Mm. And I'm like, what? Like, even weirder than that are the ones when people open one and it's not going well. And they're like, my solution to that is open another one. Yeah. And I'm like, I, no. I do not. I literally do not understand. Yeah. Like, we were always like, get, you know, get one. I guess our problem was that we wanted to make it perfect. So, like, we were like, just get this one absolutely singing. We were never ready to do the next thing. And we, we had to be pushed to be like, guys, you're on marginal gains now. You need to move on to the next one. So we did one in August 2013. We didn't want to do another one at all. And we got approached with this kind of insane offer that we wanted to turn down, which is to open in Carnaby Street in Kingley Court. And we were like, just don't think of time, right time. Anyway, we basically got pushed into it. Pretty much the only time I think our investors were like, you should definitely not, not miss this opportunity. Uh, so we did do that. That was the second one. But we didn't do another one after that for 18 months. So you're already at, you know, almost three years to do three. Yeah. Uh, and then and then I think it was another year to do the fourth. So like it took us five years to open five. Yeah. And we're now at twenty four. So, you know, you you do the you do the math. Mm. Um so yeah, it's definitely sped up, but you know, it takes a lot of time to figure this stuff out. And I just think I don't know, I would never be comfortable hitting the ground running. Plus, you know, inevitably if you want to do four in the second year, 
you're going to lose control of your business immediately because that mm. that four restaurants is not going to it's, it's a chunk of capital yeah you've got one that's working well i guarantee you're going to be a minority shareholder by the time that's done and yeah that's not a good thing and i, I just don't think you know again if you've started a business to actually enjoy it what's the rush yeah one thing that i so i love the i love the whole long-term thinking I guess in my in my business, one thing that I I struggle with, and I'd 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 have to get your your take on this, is because our business is so reliant on the YouTube channel, and it's like you know we've on like four point six seven million subscribers now with a YouTube channel, another like three hundred k with a podcast, and it's like things are growing, but at the same time, you know, subscribers there's a lot, there's a lot of churn, like the people that watched me five years ago, and broadly not the same people that are watching me now. Every day, new people are discovering the channel, and people are stopping watching the videos because they've gotten what they needed and they've left now. Yeah, like I don't listen to much of Gary V's content anymore, even though I loved it back in the day when I was first getting started. Yeah, and so there's a natural churn there, and so my worry is always like, are we now at the peak? Is it? Are we gonna? You know, is is this the year where we're gonna stop growing? Is this the year where we're gonna sort of be on the decline? And so thinking long term feels like. Uh oh, it feels scary because I like, got to make sure we're like on sixty percent margins every single year. Because if we're not, then it's like yeah, uh, 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 like all the, the kind of the fear associated with that. Yeah. Do you it, do you did you feel that at all in your business or like? I think you. I think you definitely do. I think our our way of growing is so different to you in that, like you know, it's like cool. We want to grow. Let's go and open a pizzeria in Manchester or Edinburgh yeah. or Glasgow or yeah. Bristol. Like that's that's growth, yeah. And yours is obviously you you have access to all of those people already, so it's like a very different, yeah. It's a very different approach to like, like we the, need more and yeah. better and new, yeah. And try and not like default to new because actually more and better is like. <laughs> but I guess I guess the most important thing is understand like why people watch you, right? Mm. And then doing trying to do more of that, more of that and better, and more of that and better. Yeah. But I'm I'm reading. I mean, just to you know, but yes, absolutely, constantly feel like I I genuinely believe that Pizza Pilgrims has kind of got you know survived because i literally feel like every single day it could fail tomorrow like Ooh, that's yeah. my kind of general sitting nice. anxiety <laughs> okay. level of like but if we didn't do that thing that we probably don't need to do and it's going to be a lot of effort yeah but if we don't do it we might i might fail tomorrow it might, might be the over <laughs> yeah. it might be over and yeah. i think I'm, I'm reading at the moment paul mccartney biography oh interesting is it good? Uh, who is really well i just i only read rock biographies mm. uh it's like my only thing that okay, i read nice. unfortunately i read no productivity <laughs> books radio head t-shirt mm. yeah there you go you see nice. <laughs> um and uh so i only read rock biographies but he went to um i'm gonna forget the name of the bloody philosopher now but he basically at the peak of paul mccartney at the peak of the beatles fame he constantly felt like it was going to be a flash in the pan. Beatles mm. would be forgotten. And his one thing he'd be left with was being a songwriter. Yeah. So he was constantly, the, the Beatles kind of progression of their like studio stuff and like me going, the songwriting becoming more and more complex in nature and yeah. was built around him going, I'm going to have to write songs for artists that I don't necessarily chime with. So I yeah. need to constantly be like doing new stuff yeah. in the studio to be pushing ourselves nice. so that when this all disappears and everyone's forgotten about the Beatles, I know like loads of different genres of songwriting so yeah. I can go and like have a solid career. Nice. That was his driving thought. That's cool. Which is, which that's, is, that's I mean, helpful yeah, <laughs> in some a, ways. Exactly. Anxiety but, inducing in others. But, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, it's probably not the healthy, but he went to see this really, really famous, oh God, it's going to annoy me. Basically, it's like the most famous philosopher of his time. Uh, Alan Watts? No, no, but begins uh, with a B, Bern, Bernard, uh, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell. Yes, that's exactly what it was. He's written a good essay in praise of idle, uh, in praise of idleness, right? Which I often read as like a, a solid, which is all about. It was written in like the nineteen twenties, where he's like, 
yeah, everyone's going to stop working because like <laughs> something and yeah. people are going to realize that they can just chill. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, that's exactly what it was, yeah. Bertrand Russell. And uh, so anyway, he went to see Paul McCartney. He was like, basically, I've got this thing. It's kind of, as you may have noticed, it's kind of got quite big. This is yeah. probably like 1966 or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, what What do you think I should do? He, Bertrand Russell was 90 at the time. Like, what should I do about it? I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. Like, and basically Bertrand Russell was like, you should literally enjoy it every single day. Make the most of enjoying it because it's insanely brilliant. And like, don't think about anything else. Just yeah. enjoy it to the max. I'm like, that's that's great advice. Like, I'm not saying we're anywhere near that level, but like, I love the idea that someone literally on top of the world is going, I'm worried this is all going to go wrong. And what do I do with this? And the advice from Bertrand Russell is just have a good time. That's so good. That is so good. What happened during the pandemic? And how did you guys deal with that? Oh, it was spicy. It was super spicy. Uh, shall I take you through it blow by blow? Yeah, I would love it. What's yeah. the story? It was pretty punchy. So we went, so we had um, February half term, famously really big for us. It's kind of the first like thawing of winter. Yeah, so it's 2020. 2020, yeah. February half term. Uh, like, you know, pizza and families is big. So like, it's obviously always a big week for us. Had the biggest week the company ever had in February half term. And and then how, like, many, how many stores did you have at that point? Um, it's a great question. I reckon about 17. Wow, okay. Something like that. So yeah, 20, uh, February 2020. And then our, our MD, who is a total legend, but is definitely on the kind of like germaphobe scale. He's like, oh, you know, this thing is getting quite big. So, like, Do you think this is, no, is going to be a thing? And I was like, this is so not going to be a thing. Every time it comes around, there's some kind of bird flu. It goes away again. <laughs> it's nonsense. Obviously, we then had this like weird early warning system where like, a lot of people who work for us are Italian. Mm. And we started to get calls up from Italians being like, my mum's told me that I can't come to work. Wow. Like, uh, obviously, we'd seen on the news and it was getting big. And it was like, okay, so this is getting closer and closer to home. But we were getting like the real like on your doorstep human reaction of like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not happy coming mm. to work. I don't know what this is. I don't know. What and so this was growing and growing. Uh, and obviously, you know, we were increasingly like aware of it. I went, I remember I went, went around on a Sunday, I went to every pizzeria and just sat and chatted to the team and was like, how do you feel about this? You know, anyone who doesn't want to work doesn't have to work. Um, but obviously we're not gonna be able to pay you if you choose not to work. Totally respect the decision. There'll be a job there for you if you want, but you know, we've got to keep going. Then we had this like absolute nuclear moment where Boris came out and was like, and this is probably early first week of march yeah he basically announced on the news that like people shouldn't go to bars restaurants or clubs yeah they shouldn't do it but didn't close us down yep. give us any kind of like you know support yeah so suddenly our revenue which is already we were definitely seeing the flag we were definitely starting to see revenue come down quite aggressively by 7th 8th of march yep then boris comes out and was like don't go to these places and it went like through the roof like absolute collapse and so we were there, still open, still trading, but with no one coming. Yeah. And it was like... Like literally no one. I mean... Or like I little drugs well, of I think, our, I think our revenue probably dropped by like 60 to 70% Damn. overnight. Uh, so like, I mean, we were open and trading, but we knew that every single day we were losing money. Yeah. Like, you know, there's just no way that's going to work. So, uh, you know, restaurants famously thin margins anyway. So, you know, losing, losing 10, 20% is enough to cause you. Anyway, so that happened. Um, we were like, what the hell do we do now? And basically we had to, we had to make a decision and we decided, we did two things. One, we sat down and modeled out, uh, what we called the apocalypse scenario. Ooh, okay. Which showed six weeks of closure, which was like obviously nowhere near what we ended up having. Uh, and we, I remember, we'll never forget, we did it. We did the spreadsheet. It was the four of us senior bods in the room, did the spreadsheet, pressed enter, and it was like, oh, 
actually, six weeks of closure, that's all right. We can survive this. Like, mm. This is pretty good. And then RFD was like, oh, forgot to link cell A to cell B. Boom. <laughs> like, business is gone in six weeks. Like, nothing left. Well, so, well, so why is it? Is it because you have to pay the rent for the stores and you've yeah, got to pay so, the staff? Or well, like? Yeah, so we, we were modeling it like with everyone still being paid. Oh, like, okay. you know, yeah. no. This is obviously before like any. So any, we didn't know anything about furlough. Oh, yeah, that hadn't come around then. So we had this week of like, Right, we know that we physically the business will implode. Yes. So what do we do now? We've got all these stores; they're losing money. That's quite scary. How did that feel when you saw it, the spreadsheet? It, it was totally horrendous, and I, I genuinely, <laughs> genuinely did go to the human element of like, well, what are we going to do? We can't fire all these people. Like, what are they going to do? So we basically took the decision that our plan was. Obviously, you know, everyone was nervous of it. And it was like, do we, but, you know, we were getting a lot of like, well, why are you opening? Like, you shouldn't be opening. It's not safe, blah, blah, blah. We were like, no, the best thing we can do for the most people in this business is to trade our asses off as much as we can, keep the pizzerias open as much as we can, push out and left, right, and center, tell the world that we're open and trading. And if you want to come and have a pizza, we're here for you. And basically give as many people as many hours to work as we can and hope that this all blows over, basically. Um, and, we did that and we got definitely a lot of pushback. We got a lot of people telling us that like, we were irresponsible and blah, blah, blah. But we were like, I think this is the best thing we can do for everyone. Mm. Anyway, about a week after that, we got the sort of, your pizzeria is now needs to close. Everything needs to close and you shut up by the end of today. Um, but in that same, uh, I think that was the day, the day they told us we had to close. And it was like, you need to by 11 o'clock at night, have closed everything up and gone. And you can do delivery, but nothing else. Um, they also announced furlough. Yeah. And we were sat. In this meeting, I never forget it, all of us on Zoom watching Rishi reading out what furlough is, and there was speculation of like, is it going to be forty percent of salary covered? Is it going to be sixty? Yeah, I think Denmark had done sixty, so we were like, seems unlikely it'd be more than that. And then uh, came out and said we're going to cover eighty percent of everyone's salary, and I literally remember like we were all just in tears. Oh, we were wow. all quite drunk, yeah. drinking like everyone was drinking whatever their respective drink was in their house, watching this happen. Just being like, this is unbelievable. Like all these people are going to get eighty percent of their salary. So the government was covering 80% of people's salaries. So we we went from, I think at that point, we probably had 250 people. Yeah. We went to 250 people working for Pete's Pilgrims to 248 people on furlough. Wow. Uh, and who were getting 8% of their salary. Which means honest. that you just pay 20% or no, their so salary they, goes they, down so to 80%? They unfortunately got 80%. Yeah. Okay. We couldn't afford to pay the yeah. 20 But we took the decision at that point because we'd had so much like, I'm scared to come to work. I don't want to be. Yeah. We were like, we're not going to do Deliveroo. We're just going to shut. Yeah. And we're going to, everyone's going to get 80% of their salary. They're going to be at home. Obviously, I would wish it was 100%, but it's not. Yeah. We subsequently topped up quite a few people to 100%, but yeah. it's difficult in an hour's business because yeah. obviously we did a lot of like what normal looks like. But anyway, we didn't have to let anyone go, which is unbelievable. Uh, everyone, you know, everyone stayed in the company. We closed all of our pizzerias and we just, we were just like sat there being like, Okay, so this is weird. We're going to survive, which was amazing because at the point, you know, there was one point where it was like, well, we'll be out of business by April. Yeah. Um, so we were sat there and then we started getting, after about two weeks of that, just going like, what the fuck just happened? We started getting calls from managers being like, do you know what? I'm really, really bored. And actually, you know, if, if you're thinking of reopening a pizzeria to do delivery only, count me in type thing. Nice. That started to happen. And me and James were obviously like chomping at the bit to get a pizzeria back open because we were like, Jesus, we had all these pizzerias, you know, all those pizza ovens burning and now they're all off. Um, anyway, so we, we decided after we had enough of those calls from enough people, we were like, let's open one. So we, we reopened Victoria, which had been our most recent opening. Mm. Um, we had no, 
we were in what you call a rent-free period. So when you first take on a lease, you tend to agree a period of time with a landlord where you don't pay any rent, oh. which helps to cover some of your capital expenditure. Yeah, sure. And I think we were in a sort of a year-long rent-free period on that store. So it's like, well, open there. There's no kind of awkward conversations with the landlord then about what the rent is because we're not paying rent anyway, so it's irrelevant. Yeah. So we can just open it. There's no kind of politics there. It's a good location, and we'll do delivery. So that was the plan. Uh, we started gearing up for that to happen. We were all very excited to have one open again. And then um, my brother, being my brother, just called me one day and was like, I've had this idea to send – to basically put the ingredients for a pizza into a box and send it through the post to someone, and then they could make a pizza at home while they're stuck at home. And I was like, "But what do you mean?" He's like, "Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you one." So you basically like put two dough balls, tomato sauce, mozzarella, parmesan, flour, oil, basil, in literally into a pizza box in little plastic tubs, and then wrapped it in wool. There's this proper company called Wool Cool. Yeah. So you put it. I mean, it's all pretty normal now, really. But like wrapped it in wool with an ice pack, posted it to me. Got it the next day through the post. Uh, opened it up, it had like exploded everywhere. <laughs> just but it was cold. Probed the probed the dough, and it was like safe to safe, you know, refrigeration temperature. It's like this this could be a thing. So we were just looking, I think, for something to do on Instagram that was a bit more interesting than delivery. Yeah. So like, why don't we make these kits? And um, this is before any restaurant meal kits existed. This is like no one was doing it. It was the first one I'd ever seen. And why don't we make these kits? We'll put them up for sale. Uh, we'll make 50. We'll put them up for sale on Instagram. When we first, on the day we open Victoria, we'll make them available. And then we'll make them in Victoria with the team that are there. And we can just post them to people. And, you know, it's just a fun thing for Instagram. Put 50 up for sale on that Wednesday, having promoted it, I think, on the Monday. And we sold the first 50 in like under a minute, wow. having planned to sell them in a week. And we were yeah. like, okay, this is a thing. So then we did another 50 the next day, sold them in 20 seconds. And I was starting to get my head around Shopify. And I could see that like, 200 people have tried to put them in the basket in the sort of 30 seconds that they were available. Ooh. And I was like, this is really interesting. So on the third day, we had this like sliding doors moment of do we do we try and scale this sort of, Do we, obviously there's a thing here, do we try and slowly grow it, build our you know ability to make them and like slowly expand or do we just try and sell as many as we can? Well, so we were like, let's just put 1,100 for sale. We basically put 1,100 of these kits for sale so like you will get them at some point before the 1st of May, yep. bearing in mind this was the 1st of April. Uh, and we're like, I think, you know, we'll just do that, see what happens. And we sold all 1,100 kits in 40 minutes. Wow. And it was like, I think still the most profitable hour in the history of each Pilgrims. <laughs> and suddenly we had this thing where it was like, holy crap, this is a thing. And we were on like Sunday brunch and we were growing this thing. We, you know, we had, we then opened another pizzeria to try and meet the demand. We kept buying like chest freezers, a bit like that. Yeah. And then we'd like get all these ice packs and we'd fill them like fill these chest freezers with ice packs and be like, cool. So what, 12 hours later you go back, you come back, they're all frozen. They weren't. So like just everything was just chaos. Restaurants and production facilities are like as far apart from each other as possible. But by February 21, we were doing 10,000 units a week of this, of this, of this at home. It's not bad. I mean, it was, we were turning over more than we were in the restaurants before COVID. It was mental. Bloody hell, that's cool. So it literally, like this stupid <laughs> idea, just grew and grew, and it meant that we had cash flow the whole way through. We had ev- everyone from like the Spice Girls to Stormzy to all these people made these kits. It was yeah. huge on Instagram. We grew our Instagram following by like 50,000. Um, it was mad. And uh, it saved the company. We remember we had cash flow the whole way through. Um, we were able to get a whole load of people off furlough to help us make the kits. And they obviously got their 100% payback. And... 
yeah and we just we kind of feathered it in with and then yeah we were reopening pizzerias and and we still do pizza in the post today as it was named but um it's obviously like so much smaller than it was yeah but we have about we have about 350 400 subscribers who get it either once a week or oh, once it's a, a subscription month. box type thing it now oh, is a subscription yeah. and Recurring um, revenue. <laughs> Love it. yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly and you know it was just it was a, i mean it meant that we never ever sat still in covid it actually like made you know certainly for the parts of the world where we don't have a pizzeria you know people in edinburgh have now heard of us where they wouldn't have done before yeah and uh yeah it was an amazing it was an amazing solution to the problem basically love it what are your thoughts on franchises i've had such a weird u-turn on this recently Mm. i was always like the word franchise just implies like no one gives a shit Mm. sort of like just grow it for the sake of growing it like Mm. corporate nonsense then I watched The Founder. Have you watched The Founder? No, I haven't. What is that? It's phenomenal. A, just because I love Michael Keaton with all of my heart. But it's basically about the guy who who first discovered McDonald's in San Bernardino. Oh, two brothers yeah. running this amazing Ray, restaurant. Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc, exactly. And then he's like something about the systems. It's a classic like business case study of like yeah, it's amazing. systems. Of, like, it's like systemize the shit out of everything. <laughs> it's got such a yeah. lovely hypocritical start though where he yeah. basically he, Ray Kroc, was a salesman of uh milkshake mixing machines that yep. made five at once not one mm. and it was sort of like famously like no one needs to make five at once because it's just it's overkill like yep. you just make one at a time and maybe mm. buy two machines if you need to make two mm. uh anyway he got this call from this restaurant in san bernardino being like we need eight of these machines and he's like no no you can't be right like we you, you, pro- you know you mean you need to eat eight milkshakes like no no we need eight five spindle milkshake machines so he drove out to see them and that was mcdonald's and he was like this is the greatest thing ever and started you know did the franchise and i think uh you know it's a great film you should watch it but i guess the point is that like where i'm at with it is like done right and with the right selection process your franchisee is going to be so much more engaged potentially than like a manager of a store now like you know not at our level but like if you if you're you know, if you're, if you're going like, right, here you go, you can take over this McDonald's person, you know, here's a new McDonald's, you can come and take it over, it's your business, you need to pay us a percentage, but anything you make is yours. That person is going to, like, I yeah. think, absolutely gun that business and, like, look after the standards and be amazing at what they do, potentially better than a manager. Hmm. And I think, you know, obviously it's about picking the right things. I'm not saying that I, you know, I don't think that, you know, we work super hard with our managers and they're super engaged and... Well, I think they are. They certainly seem to be. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, done right. But I could see if you're like, right, we're going to open 300 of these. It would be easier to do it with franchisees than it would be. And you'd get a better outcome for everyone. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's it's a, it's a difficult one because restaurant, restaurant margins are, are tight. And, like, if you've got to give 5% to someone, that's, that's a big chunk of your potential upside. Um, where it gets smart with McDonald's is they basically became the landowner. And that's where they make all their money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the story behind Pizza Academy? So the Pizza Academy opened in uh, March 2020, which is an inauspicious time to open a restaurant. Uh, but the idea was that we wanted to create... I hate the idea that people think of hospitality as like not a great job or a good career and that it's easy. They're the two things that drive me mad. Um, I personally believe you should go and do your university degree. Then you should go and do a year working in a restaurant and you will learn so much about people, about teamwork, about like problem solving, and just general life in that year. Whatever you then go on and do, it'll be, you'll be better at it. Mm. Um, so 
that idea combined with the idea that like actually to start you know if your first shift in pizza pilgrims is in carnaby street on saturday night it's busy and intense and not a good place to learn so you're like wouldn't it be great if we could have a place where it was like a central point of truth about how we do stuff it's a pizzeria as in like there are real live humans in there who are customers but it's kind of quieter and we can kind of teach people the way to do it in a kind of controlled environment but it is actually a real environment mm. and that was the idea for the academy yeah. so it's a space in camden it's it's split into three there's a there's a small restaurant at the front that's open all the time so like on a monday lunch probably about 20 seats in the front and that's just always open and then we have a, a front of house training section in the middle with a bar and like a projector and like um you know, we kind of do core. We do everything from like mental health awareness to uh, how to do your stock control to uh, we do a big warm welcome there once a month where all the new joiners meet me and James and we chat about the company and stuff. And then the back, we've got a back of house recruitment. So we've got like bleacher seating. You can watch and like learn about the new menu items. And it's just a big old space where you can learn about how to make pizza. Hmm. And every head chef and manager who starts the company now starts through there. And everyone within their first month has to go there in some capacity to like do a course yeah. or like, and I think, it, you know, you can apply to do more. So it's interesting that people who like really want to progress themselves will push to be there more. Uh, and it's been, a, it's been a really lovely little, uh, lovely exercise in trying to do something. I mean, it, it makes, it breaks even as a pizzeria, which was a hard sell to the board because it was like, we've got to spend a whole chunk of money building a pizzeria that will make no money. But it will actually help <laughs> yeah. the whole company. But I genuinely think it has helped the whole company. And I think we're still learning really what it's about. But I, I guess my aim is that every single person in the company can learn something there, whether it's your first day and you're learning the absolute basics or meeting me or James to, you know, you're a board member and you've been in the industry for 40 years. And actually, we're going to get we had a talk of uh, uh, we had Fred Syriacs from First Dates come and talk to us Ooh, about hospitality there. Yeah. We've had we're going to get. Um, uh, I'm obsessed with getting someone from an airline because I feel like dealing with customers at 30,000 feet that are there for 12 hours that have paid you a lot of money mm. that are difficult, that is tough. Yeah. And so actually, what are, the, what are the things that they teach you, British Airways or Virgin Airways or whatever, yeah. to deal with that? Because actually our person who's paid £10 for a pizza and is only going to be there 30 minutes is easy compared mm. to that person. Nice. That's cool. Um, I read something about you guys. You employ homeless people and ex-convicts yeah. and stuff. What's the... So that's what we do. Yeah. So that's a big uh, a big part of what the Academy is about as well. So we've done uh, two... We've worked with two charities, one called The Passage. They're based in Victoria. And another called Only a Pavement Away. And it's about uh, exactly that, giving uh, ex-convicts or people who've kind of... Who are homeless or have been homeless a kind of a second start in life, I guess. Mm. And I just feel so fundamentally that hospitality is a great match for that because it, it's almost all about attitude and not about skill. Obviously, it's skill to be a pizza chef and like, you know, you learn your skills, but we can teach you the skills. It's very much about your attitude. And I think giving people a chance to kind of come and, you know, rediscover themselves surrounded by people. They're not like on their own. They're not, you know, they're, they're in a support network is a great way to do it. So we're trying to do, we're trying to do um, more of that as, we, as, as much as we can to, to bring people back up the streets into into work yeah this is one thing that i've been thinking about a lot around what's the point of growing the business because like once you hit a certain profit margin you're just like ah eh, like more money in our ebitda sort of uh pdf is not that personally meaningful and so i'm trying to figure out for our business what is the 
what's the service component like giving back and stuff and it, feel, it feels kind of cringe talking about it as well because people like virtue signaling and all that shit yeah but i'm curious like how do, how do you think about that like, i mean i absolutely have obsessed about this and i think it's you know you know if you really push me i'll get onto like sort of failing of capitalism type type thing of like we just always want more and like if more people knew where stop was everyone would be better off probably but i i I think in a very small way that doesn't really work for something like even Pete's Pilgrims because you're right, like there's no need for the company to grow, but if it doesn't grow, the whole mindset around it changes. Now, I think the question is, can it grow? Does it have to grow in scale? Could it grow in like stature or responsibility sure. like that? But if it's not growing in one of those ways, everyone's going to lose interest or selling R will lose interest. Yeah, that's the thing. And And it's not giving genuinely, and I mean this in the kind of the most obvious way, like, our great people need to be growing. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you're a head chef today, what's next? Yeah. And if it's not, well, we've grown. So I now need to look after two other head chefs and move into a higher level. Or do you know what? We now need a head of health and safety. So I'm going to go and be that. Or we need someone in the creative food team. I'm going to go and be that. If you're not growing, if we'd stopped at 10, we wouldn't have the money to have a food team or a health and safety person. Yeah. Either. We have a third, par- third party health and safety <coughs> team. But, um, so, yeah, I think, you know, at a small level, you've got to grow to kind of give your team opportunity. Yeah. But the danger is you do just end up, you know, if you're doing that the wrong way, if you're taking then debt on to grow and then you've got to service the debt and then it's sort of a, it's a vicious circle. Mm. So we've always been very, very conscious that if we're growing, we're growing because we kind of feel like we're going to, we're going to break it at the seams if we don't. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I did a good interview with Steve Steve Bartlett yesterday, and he was saying that um, one of the main reasons for their growth, or like one of the ways he thinks about it is if a team member is not challenged in their job, they will leave within six months. 100%. And so he's constantly like keeping an eye on like making sure everyone is one foot out there, one foot in outside of their comfort zone to make sure there's like some level of discomfort so yep. that they then feel like they're part of something and you know, just in general, like the feeling of growth for people is just an addictive feeling. And I found that with my first business, I was teaching courses, helping people get into medical school. We like grew, we grew, we grew. And then 2015, 2016, we dipped in revenue. And all of a sudden, it was just like night and day difference between how I felt about it. I was just like, oh God. Yeah. Now either we double down on this and really make it grow, but now my heart's not in it or I really like it. And growth, weirdly, the stuff that I was doing to grow that business I wouldn't have said it was particularly fun. It was like a lot of admin, a lot of logistics, a lot of bloody printing booklets and making sure they arrive at the Manchester hotel room and making sure the team members who are taking the train, there's no strikes to get there on time so we can teach the kids that are there. Yeah. But it was growing and there was something so exciting about the fact that it was growing. Yeah. And as soon as it stopped growing, now all of those things are just like an absolute nightmare to deal with. And I'm like, why the hell am I spending my time doing this stuff? Have you found that at all? Like growth is addictive? It is addictive. And I think it's, you know, it's so hard it's so hard to start again. And I think with COVID, you really did have to start again. And I think you you really were like back down again, like rebuilding and like some of the stuff you thought you'd done, you were kind of having to pretty much fundamentally rebuild. So yeah, I I totally, I totally, totally get that. And I think, you know, the thing I say most is like, I just want to be learning, like everything else is irrelevant. If I'm not learning something, I'm going to be bored. And I think that applies to, you know, the vast majority of people in our business. And we really want to employ people who are driven by that because mm. I think a lot of people, you know, I think there are two types of people who will come into, you know, uh, 
come into our business and, and be a KP, which is like, you know, washing the pots and like you're starting rung on the ladder. Yeah. One of them is like, this is the starting rung on the ladder. And I'm looking at the prep chef going, how do I be a prep chef? And then I'm looking at the junior chef being like, how do I do that? That That is the person I think, you know, we want to have in Pizza Pilgrims, really. But then there are plenty of people who just, you know, some some of them have worked for us for many, many years who don't want that. They They want you know, work is not what drives them. Yeah. They come to work, they do their job, they go home and what drives them is family or, you know, community or, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't yeah. matter. But like, so you've got to be able to do both. You've got to, you've got to accept that some people are just not built that way. They mm. don't want that constant next thing. They just want, you know, to know what to know what their job looks like, to get a fair pay for it, take it home and spend that how they want. And I think it's it's a hard line to walk. But I mean, I always said we'd never go past 15 and here we are. 24 yeah <laughs> so you know either i'm a liar or i'm an idiot or i don't know but yeah it's just making sure that it's, it's you know we, we've been lucky in that we've never got where, where it gets bad is when you're doing it for the wrong reasons when you're you know when you're like oh this one didn't work so i'm going to do two and i'll get economies of scale and then it will work it's like mm. no way or i've taken out a massive loan and it's not working so i'm gonna have to like keep going to you know that's that that's the bit that if that's driving you then you should probably stop yeah, there was a, a good quote I heard at a, a business conference, which is that, like, if you think you're a bad parent with one kid, then for God's sake, don't have a second one thinking you're going to be a better parent for two. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although th- th- there is a weird thing about, like, you know, obviously not in the very early days, but, like, the kids will look after each other. Mm. <laughs> so, like, Economies of scale. Ma- maybe, the, <laughs> yeah. maybe the businesses are doing that. Maybe having more of them just means there's more of a network. Yeah. But it's interesting for us, sorry, draw that out, but it's interesting for us building that network in london is a real thing and like you know the pizzerias can help each other out and like you know i've run out of that cool i can get that sorted for you no problem but then you have a new thing where like we opened in nottingham and we have one pizzeria in nottingham and it's not near to any of our other pizzerias and they are very much more an island like you know Ooh. that person has to be so much more on it there's no room for like do you know what? i've run out of x because no one can save you yeah and it's a very different it's a very different mentality like when you when you realize having one is there's nowhere to hide mm. how do you balance family life I'm like married, two kids, and also <laughs> founded a business in the food food industry that's growing for the last ten years. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's definitely not easy, and I definitely don't don't balance it as well as I potentially could. I mean, I, I guess my problem really is I'm I'm kind of there a lot, as in like physically at home. I try and get home and sort of you know certainly be home for bedtime and all that kind of stuff, and don't you know I don't leave the house at six. So, you know, I see the kids in the morning and in the evening, and mm. I take them to school quite a lot and that kind yeah. of thing. But am I like mentally there? No, quite a lot of the time because my phone's going off and, you know, I've got a thing and I'm I'm there with the kids, but I'm actually replying to an email or dealing with some kind of emergency. And I think that, that's the, been the problem for me. And certainly what my wife would say is like, you know, well, she basically is like, if, if iPhones existed when we met, we wouldn't be together. Yeah. <laughs> like, which, I mean, I know they did exist, but I didn't have one. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> yeah, you know, they are they are a little like, they're a little uh, attention-sucking nightmare, aren't they? And are you kind of or business? both. <laughs> yeah. I was talking actually specifically about iPhones. Like, just there's no escape. <laughs> yeah, like there's no escape from it, and it's I, you know you've got to you've got to learn to turn it off. And I'm yeah. trying my best, but nice. Uh, have Have there been any sort of rules or systems you've added to your life that have been helpful in maintaining this sort of harmony or balance? I mean, I, 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 I'll be honest, I've tried like almost all of those like things, you know, all those kind of productivity tools. I have never found, I've always found it a bit like doing a sort of revision timetable. 
which I'm just like, I feel like I'm just putting off doing the stuff (laughs) rather than like actually I'm spending all the time, you know, color coding it and making it all perfect. Mm. And so actually, you know, I've, it's interesting at the moment, I'm just at this weird transition, which I'm trying to sort of resist of like, um, we now have a sort of, uh, uh, a lady who looks after the, uh, management team diaries essentially. And I've always been like, I just don't really understand why it would help me to bring in someone to help me with this because yeah. I feel like I know exactly what's going on in my week. Yep. I know where my priorities are and what's, and I feel like I'm going to have to like communicate all of this to someone else yeah. for them to do it. Mm. And I don't, I don't really feel like it's going to make my life easier. So I've sort of resisted that idea of the future. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just use, I, I, I'm obsessed about my calendar have a family calendar and a work calendar nice. and they, you know, making sure that they talk to each other and like, you know, everyone's aware of what's what's going on. My wife works, she works for, um, she actually also works for a restaurant business. She works for Dishoom. Oh yeah. Nice. Um, so uh, she, you know, she's busy as well. So yeah, uh, sadly no, no exciting kind of life hacks in there. Just, nice. just, just good. Yeah. I, I think staying close to it and, you know, not letting someone else manage your diary to me, that makes no sense. But exactly. Um, final question. It comes from uh, Arnav from our Telegram community. What lessons have you learned from running Peter Pilgrims that you could share with aspiring entrepreneurs? I, I think you know it's such a cliche thing, but like no one know, no one knows what they're doing, like especially in restaurants. So don't overthink it. Like if you've got an idea and you like it, think of any way you can test it that you know will give you a bit more insight into whether the idea is is a goer whether you actually enjoy it whether it's something that's you know there's a need for it without quitting your job so you don't have to like throw everything in on day one Mm. just start testing the fences a little bit but the other thing is don't go away to my mind like you know i could have gone right i want to run a pizza company what i'm going to do is i'm going to go and work for pizza express for 10 years and figure out exactly how they do everything and then i can go away and and i don't think that would have set me up any more to for success than just having a crack and doing it your way uh and i think if you are that way minded if you if the white blank piece of paper is something that excites you you, you'll figure it out because that that's how you're built if you're a person who likes the structure and likes to know that their pay packet lands on the last friday every month and likes to know that there is a team of people out there to help you i think you've got to think really really hard about whether you want to run your own business um because i think i think there's definitely a danger I, I love that it's celebrated more and that like, you know, entrepreneurship, which is not a word that I particularly love, uh, is kind of now genuinely considered something to aspire to rather than something that only crazy people do. I feel mm. like that has changed. You know, now, you know, entrepreneurs are now like very much put up on a pedestal, whereas I think 20 years ago that was not the case. It was your Gordon Geckos that was on a pedestal yeah. 30 years ago, probably. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think it's good that it's on a pedestal, but I think the danger is that it's like, it's for everyone or, you know, that it's like the ultimate goal. And I, I, I just, I don't think it is. I think it's fantastic for certain kinds of people, but it is, it has downsides and it's, you know, it's not, you know, we can't all be the guitarist in Led Zeppelin, right? Like mm. everyone wants to be, but, and it looks cool, but it had, I'm sure it had some massive downsides and not everyone can do it. And so like, I, I really think, you know, it's a great thing to try and like, you know, try it in the most, you know, if you, if you want to start a food business, go and do it like, a weekend market for one Saturday and see if you enjoy it because you know, you might hate it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, I guess my actual lesson of the deep in there was like, don't overthink it. Don't think that everyone knows everything you don't do. Don't know it. Like 
give it just give it a shot like what's the worst that could happen nice it's a great place to end this tom thank you so much thanks man all right so that's it for this week's episode of deep dive thank you so much for watching or listening all the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes depending on where you're watching or listening to this if you're listening to this on a podcast platform then do please leave us a review on the itunes store it really helps other people discover the podcast or if you're watching this in full hd or 4k on youtube then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode that would be awesome and if you enjoyed this episode you might like to check out this episode here as well which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode so thanks for watching uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already and i'll see you next time Bye-bye.